Kids, the clock is ticking. Be in front of your podcast device of choice for the Empire Podcast with guests Eddie Azar, star Dr. Chekel, Blackberry director Matt Johnson, and Barbie director Greta Gerwig. Don't miss it, and don't forget to wear your masks. The clock is ticking. It's almost time. Happy, happy Halloween! 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 Happy, happy Halloween! Empire Podcast. Happy, happy Halloween! 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 Blimey, that was a terrifying intro. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast this week. It's very close to Halloween. Whoa, whoa. Do you know something? You individually have made me hate Halloween. You have made me hate introductions. <laughs> Could you fucking wait for five seconds? No, no I won't. No, For I the won't. love of Christ. I cannot be contained. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. I am in the studio. I am in the grey, depressing pod booth. I am utterly terrified to be looking at our great big fucking nerd, James Dyer. Hello, James. Hello, Chris. Why do you hate Halloween? Because you sing the stupid song. And Don't it's, encourage it's, the song. What stupid song? The stupid Don't song that you sing song. that ruins this particular holiday for everyone who listens to the podcast. Enhances. Does it? That's a weird way Does of saying it. ruins. Mm. Enhances. Uh, anyway, that was the intro you just didn't hear. So there you I go. I know what. It's, I've spared this, your ears. This spared intro is ears. a mystery to me. It's a mystery. You'll find a, out. You won't listen to the podcast. I so, won't. No, I'll yeah. never find out. Anyway, it's the, that intro. Okay. Yeah. Geek Queen Helen O'Hara is also here. Helen, do you hate Halloween? No, but I do hate that song, so thank you for sparing us. Yes. In fairness, you're not meant to like that song. Oh, okay. That song is... Goal achieved in that case, but (laughs) but really, like... It's one of the things that triggers the climax of Halloween 3, for for one of a better word. It makes all the snakes and the bugs and the creepy crawlies come out of masks and take over the world. That doesn't sound like something you want to encourage, It does not trigger my climax. It's not. It is not something you want to encourage whatsoever. Um, Something you do want to encourage is the presence of John Nugent on this podcast. John has taken time out from his busy schedule of recording the last Beatles song, now and then it has been revealed today is the title uh, it is going to be out next Thursday November 2nd with a Peter Jackson directed music video Peter Jackson uh, directed music video to come out the next day uh, which is which is delightful delightful John the world's greatest George Harrison looky likey were you also a playy likey did they recruit you for this this song yeah me and the other looky likeys got together and recorded a slightly slightly less good version of the same song. Oh, so yeah. you could have been George Harrison in Robert Zemeckis's uh, sadly much lamented Yellow Submarine movie that he uh, he was going to make uh, yeah. where he had cast he had cast uh, Peter Serafinowicz as Paul he had cast Carrie Elwes as I think George and someone else as John and someone else as Ringo so you could have huh. you could have taken Carrie Elwes do you think? Yeah, Elwes has left the building. Was, was I the... mean, I've seen him sword fight. I don't know. <laughs> I don't was... think uh, me and Elwes have anything in common, or George Harrison for that matter. No, I'm, maybe I'm wrong I... about that, but he was definitely cast. Kerry Elwes was definitely cast, and he wasn't cast as Ringo, and I don't think he was cast as John, so that just leaves George. 
So okay. there you go. Uh, should we have questions? Yes, yeah. please. Please don't ask us to list some. Oh, please, God, no. Filmmakers' oeuvre. Can you name? No. No. <laughs> every film. No. Wow, this is yes. a strange question. Every film ever every made. Every film in order. From the beginning. <laughs> no, I asked I asked people today, I gave a slightly panicked shout out on the bus on the way here. Because I realized you. this is our, our Halloween episode. So I asked for some scary film related questions. It's Halloween. We like okay. to, we asked okay. to tackle scary film questions. And I've got a couple here. First one's from Hamish Dwyer. No what are the best and worst horror film set visit experiences Team Empire have been on? Ooh. Now, have you been on any, first of all? I think so, yeah. I was on 30 Days of Night. Ooh. Yeah, which was the vampires attacking the town of, I think it's Barrow, Alaska, which um, is uh, one of the towns in the Arctic Circle that has 30 Days of Night. So the idea is that the vampires rock up just before sunset and then yes. they have a whole month to literally go to town on the town of Barrow. Uh, and that Josh was actually Hartnett? A, Josh Hartnett, correct. Melissa George. Yep. Danny, Danny Houston. Houston. Yeah, all good, all cast. good people. And um, it was a really fun set visit. I, I flew to New Zealand. I was practically in the Ooh. air longer than I was Ooh. on the ground, which Ooh. was upsetting. Um, business class of levels. or economy? It was back in the day and it was business class. Oh, we rarely, nice. I mean, if we're flying anywhere now, Boom. it's usually in, in steerage. Mm. Oh, um, attached to the plane. Attached the wing, to the, the wing, outside like of the Tom plane. Cruise. Yeah. Back in the noughties, they'd send a Pegasus for us. It they was a, usually a Pegasus. <laughs> a but time. in this case, it, mm. was, it was business class. But it was, so I was very lucky in that sense as well. And then um, it was one of those set visits where you're like, this is a proper set visit. I'm standing in a fake town. Mm. In fake snow, mm. there's a building on fake fire, well, real fire, but, you know, controlled real fire. Yeah. And there's a fake vampire Ooh. on fire oh. jumping out of that building into the snow. That's like, good. This, this is what I got into the business for. Yes. That, so that is good. Yeah. Did they offer to uh, make you an extra so you could attack Josh Hartnett? <laughs> they did not, no. And anyway, the restraining order was in place at that point. I wouldn't have I know. He does like to come within 50 yards of you, doesn't he? <laughs> It's so weird. It's so, so weird. So For odd. the record, Josh Hartlett uh, does not like to stalk Helen O'Hara. Okay. Yes, so, let's or Helen O'Hara is what your Helen name should be this week. Helen O'Hara. Oh. The, the, the O'Hara. The O'Hara. I've actually gone with uh, Hel and O'Hara. I don't do um, those funny I, little I, Halloween I, Yeah, names. I don't like it. No. I, I, I have none of this frippery. Die, die, couldn't have. Couldn't have. No! Speaking of of the horror. (laughs) So yeah, so that was that was one. Um I have been on a couple of other horror movies, but um Have a little think. Have a little think. Very small British ones. I was on that one with Sean Sean Bean and Sheep. Farmageddon. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's a great film. I love it. Sean and Sheep. Sean of the Bean. Sean of the Bean. I was on the set of Sean the Sheep Farmageddon. Were you? Were you? What kind of set was that? I mean, it was there was very little going on, you know, they're moving at a very slow pace. But yeah, I went to the the Yardman Studios in Bristol. Oh, good. Um, That must have been extraordinarily dull. Oh, no. No. Complete opposite. Presumably, even the most, you know, high-octane set piece, like, right, move it a bit, right, everyone stop and shoot. Right, stop, everyone come, move it a bit, move it a bit, and next bit. Lunch must take hours. (laughs) There there is a whole uh, fast show sketch, isn't there, about that? Yeah, yeah. And then I moved a bit, and then I moved a little bit. Yeah. Um, no, it was wonderful. It was, I, I mean, I've loved Ardman since I was... John, we've all loved Ardman. This is not an attack on Ardman. I'm just saying that the process of making a stop frame animation movie must be not for the people who are making it because they are professionals and they're infested in it emotionally, but for you, a, a hack 
yeah, uh, well, arriving on wow. set, it must be quite dull. Well, it's not. It's not. It doesn't follow the traditional set visit approach where you sit and watch, sat by... watch some, you know, filming take place. Because yeah. I mean, it's not filming. It's 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 essentially still photography. You but know. they kind of tour you around the models. Right? Yeah. No, yeah. We, I got to see the set. The sets at Ardman are incredible. Mm. I yeah. mean, they had a whole like city. They had the farm. I, I saw the Bristol. models. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty great. Though. I mean, look, it was, I mean, wonder, it was like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I, I felt like a little boy. Did they let you? Like, can you like do a bit of animation? Would you? Would we, if we paused a certain frame of Shaun the Sheep Farmageddon, would we see your fingerprints? And from no. that, would we be able to clone you? I mean, have you ever been on a set visit and they're like, "Do you want to direct a bit of the film?" <laughs> no, but for certain films that I've thought I might pitch in here because <laughs> frankly, I couldn't do a worse job. Yeah, but uh, no, no, no. no I, well, okay, well, Steven Spielberg let me control the camera on Tintin. <laughs> That explains a lot. That's actually true. <laughs> hey, that is a good film. Yeah, it's because on the volume, you obviously have the little remote control, so you can virtually control the camera. Uh, and he's like, have a go with this. And he gave me the thing and let me fly the camera. Yeah, was cool. the camera rolling at the yes. time? <laughs> it was in the final cut. <laughs> These are great set visit anecdotes. Neither of those are horror films. It's true. Although Tintin some... is arguable. Yeah. Farmageddon does play with some horror tropes. It has some horror tropes yeah. in it. And once again, I would say Tintin, great film. Great. No, Leave I'm glad you're here, John. Yeah. I'm glad you're here. Yeah. I don't uh, want to go in. I don't want to go in like Charlie Chaplin. I like went in on Charlie Chaplin on a Lucky Spider special. Charlie oh, Chaplin's dear. reeling. He's not coming yeah. back from that. <laughs> I mean, I think he'll be all right. But yeah, he geez. might be okay with his little cool. funny mustache. Uh, any horror films, well, James? I was on the set of Scott Stewart's Priest. Before <gasps> Bethany thing. Yes, uh, that's, that's good. That's got Undeadage in it. That's good. I mean, it wasn't. But no, the film wasn't good. But <laughs> a set visit would be fun. Set visit was a laugh. We were very excited about that we film were. at the yeah. time. Well, because yeah. didn't it follow on the footsteps of their their collaboration on Legion, uh, which, where he was an angel? <laughs> Why were we a, excited about I it? I don't know. It was an angel with a machine gun. It just seemed cool. Uh, so yeah, no, I was on set of that. That wasn't a great set visit. It was fine. It was actually okay. But I was also on the set of Twenty Eight Weeks Later. Oh, so which was what uh, did you see? What did you see? Uh, do you see? Do you see? Uh, I went to a farmhouse in I think it was Hertfordshire, uh, and I saw lots of infected trying to eat Robert Collard. So the bit that I saw them shooting was the prologue. You know the prologue oh, that's bit? an amazing which shot. Which is great. Yeah. yeah. So it's on the farmhouse where they've been living, and then you know that you're just out of shot. Yeah, I'm just I'm one of the infected, and then and then someone accidentally attracts them, and they come and they kill everyone. It's Essentially. Uh, and I was oh yeah, I spent ages talking to Robert Carlyle about the film. And He's in it for fucking 15 minutes. Like he gets killed at the beginning of the movie. Spoiler I didn't mention that when I was on set. So Well, for obvious reasons. Well, yes, yeah. fair. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was actually, it was fun. It was fun. There were lots of uh, infected running How around. was Robert Carlyle? Running around the catering. The catering was excellent. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Robert Carlyle was good. Yes. I enjoyed talking to, uh, to Bobby Carlyle. Okay. John? As perhaps, I don't know how many sets you've yeah, been on. Less but, than you guys. I, yeah. I, I can't think, I mean, my memory is quite bad, but I can't think of a horror film. I mean, I was on the set of Men in Black International. That was pretty That's pretty fucking Harsh, horrifying. Harsh, yeah. it's fine. It's, it's quite a lot less than fine. Yeah, but, um, it's not I don't know. Yeah, that was... That I don't was, think it's the worst. Just saying. The Nobody worst in the franchise. The yeah. That's, well, that's incorrect. <laughs> um, it, it is incorrect. It's the worst in the franchise. But what's the worst in the franchise? Two? Three at least has that great Josh Brolin performance. Yeah, three's, three's kind of fun. Mm. Anyway, <laughs> anyway we, we... the Sean Bean film was The Dark. The Dark! The I've dark. seen that film. It's yeah. a good film. It was all right. Anna yeah. Paquin? 
I want uh, to say. Maria Bello. Yes, yeah. I often get those two mixed up. <laughs> sure. One of them won an Oscar for, for being in the piano. I can't tell if it was Maria Bello or Anna Paquin. What accent was she doing in the piano? She was doing a Scottish accent in the I piano. I see. And what one are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing a, doing a Scottish accent in the piano. <laughs> right. So, there anyway, we go. Yeah. At least I think it was about to be Scottish. It's hard to tell, frankly. But she won an Oscar anyway. Well done. Well, well done. Youngest person with an Oscar, wasn't she, no, for, for a long time? Was she younger than Tatum O'Neill? Pretty sure she wasn't as young as Tatum O'Neill. I think Tatum O'Neill still has the... Um, All right. Her. What about the, the Jacob Trombley win the Oscar, or have I just made that up? I think you've made for that up. For the Predator. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was a, a left field choice. When the Predator swept the board. Hey, who was on set of the Predator? Because that me. was a horror film. That yeah, was, uh, yeah I suppose it was a horror film. Yes, I was on set of the Predator. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I was, it, was, uh, it was very cold, and they lent me some Wellington boots which I tried unsuccessfully to steal <laughs> and was forced to return <laughs> under sufferance. They were really warm. Oh, That's a shame. I stole my entire wardrobe from Hostel Part 2. Did you? I just walked Hang off on. set with it. Wait, <laughs> didn't you wear your own, clothes? your own clothes? No, no, no. They, uh, they brought me to wardrobe. and um, You were playing drunk British slob yeah. and you stole the slob clothes. I just walked off set with them. <laughs> and they never came for you. And then went to a, a fancy dress party three weeks later dressed as <laughs> in the exact same costume. That's amazing. I went, I went, you know, I'm the only person here dressed as an actual movie character, so go fuck yourselves. I am, um, when I was on set of The Predator, uh, I, Turn around. Uh, indeed, anytime. Uh, oh, Thomas Jane was there and I went straight up to him and proceeded to talk to him about The Expanse for about an hour. <laughs> While he edged to the so no, Genuinely, genuinely, he'd been like, he'd been a bit like, he'd been in an okay interview, but as soon as I started talking about The Expanse, he went like, he was well up for it clearly loved that show not a lot of people watched it certainly at that time and because he was except producing as well so he was really invested in it and he properly opened up and he was brilliant after that there you go we had our expanse bonding session I also had a Thomas Jane uh, set visit experience on the set of Punisher. The Mist ah oh yeah oh, Frank Darabont's feel good film The Mist The Mist I had I was on that film for I want to say three days one of the greatest set visit experiences of my life. Is that your life. longest set visit? No, longest was <laughs> X Men Apocalypse. How? How? I was on, I was on set. Feel like the longest. <laughs> I was on set for. It might have been longer actually. It might have been on set for Green of Green Zone for nearly a week. But um, I did five days on Lord of War. Oh, that's pretty good. Mm. Yeah. Oh, were you doing rewrites? Uncredited <laughs> 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 rewrites. Um, no, I was on set of X-Men Apocalypse for three, three days. Three days. And during that time, I detected chatter that Hugh Jackman was going to come back in February for reshoots mm. and play a cameo as Wolverine, which he does. So I went back for an additional two days of additional filming and ended up writing, and I'm not kidding, 150 words about it <laughs> in Empire but yeah that was an amazing experience but it wasn't a horror film uh, but The Mist was well. a horror film uh, well <laughs> maybe the most terrifying film we mentioned here uh, but I was on set of The Mist for three days and that was incredible because they had built the supermarket set um, in Shreveport, Louisiana and it was, in, it was it was just an amazing amazing set I mean it was so uh, well built and you know everything was it was so well built nothing nothing fell down and killed anyone and uh, Greg Nicotero and his team were upstairs making monsters and and that was really really cool that was fantastic sitting by Frank Darabont's right hand I was given the script 
for that to read. It doesn't always happen. Mm. I was given the script for that to read, and uh, but the last few pages were missing. Deliberately oh. withheld. Missing or misting? Misting, yes. And there was a swear box on set if you said what? if you said the F word as in fog, they docked you money. Wow. wow. Yeah. <laughs> Great film though. Real quick, because I want to move on to another question. There, there have been a couple. You know, I was on both hostels. I'm in Hostel Part 2. Blink and you'll miss it. Five stars, says Empire Magazine. Um, and uh, there's been a couple over the years. It, <laughs> spoiler alert, it ain't it ain't scary being on a horror movie set, apart from, you know, when it's dark and you're trying to get the craft services table and you're worried about tripping up. Mm. That's it. The last horror film I was on was Scott Cooper's Antlers, where I got to interview... Jesse Plemons, because as you know, when life gives you Plemons, you make lemonade. I got to interview Kerry Russell and I got to see the the terrifying antler creature uh, being operated backstage. That was nice. And I had, you know, I've been on a few of Guillermo del Toro's sets and I got to see, oh, an army of the dead, uh, where there were zombies running around and Dave Bautista and that was, that was great. And then I saw on Crimson Peak, Crimson Peak was amazing, the, the greatest single set I've ever been on. And I've been on some amazing sets that'll take your breath away, like Prometheus and things like that. But this is the, the most intricate, most fully realized, fully developed set I've ever been on. Where you could go up and you could see the wallpaper and the word fear was written into the into the wallpaper. Oof, like just repeated constantly. And I had an amazing experience with that. Um, with Tom Hiddleston, where I went to interview Tom Hiddleston in his, in his trailer. And... Uh, we both scared the bejesus out of each other by swapping ghost stories. And Tom Hiddleston told me uh, that it happened to us in real life or supernatural experiences that had happened to us in real life or perceived supernatural experiences. So I told him about something that happened after my dad died. And Tom has this thing where when he, he's got this empathetic thing where he starts crying when he hears things like this. And so I told him the story about my dad and I looked up and there was Tom Hiddleston with tears coursing down his cheek. Wow. Uh, it was amazing. An amazing experience. I wrote about it in the magazines. I'm not, I'm not telling tales out of school here. Uh, but yeah. When you said uh, worried about tripping over things in the dark, that reminded me. Uh, I was on Alien Covenant. And Ooh. that was pitch black. Uh, no, not, pitch black not, was wasn't pitch black. Okay. It was a different film. But uh, the, you know, the set was in darkness. And I was very worried about tripping. And then out of the darkness loomed these sort of giant statues, those giant faces. <gasps> and that was a Michael really, Fassbender. Michael Fassbender. <laughs> And that was a really you think the face is big set to be on because the thing was I was genuinely like in in that in that massively dark environment I was like if if I see an alien just prop I'm going to scream just because it's so dark here I'm going to scream so I was genuinely tense because I'm like, am I going to embarrass myself and Empire by completely freaking <laughs> out because I caught a glimpse of an alien looming out of the darkness. Oh shit! Oh, things are coming back to me. <laughs> things are coming back to me because I was just thinking, like, I haven't really been on any of the, the great masters, you know, the great horror masters, you know, because John Carpenter effectively has given up directing. I haven't been on a Joe Dante set. I haven't been on a Cronenberg set. I haven't been on a Wes Craven set for obvious reasons for the last few years. I was on a Cronenberg set. Were you? Which one? Spider. Spider. Hmm. How was that? I was hiding in a bush. Oh, that's one where you infiltrated. Yeah, I wasn't invited. <laughs> it was back in the Wild West days of the website when we tried to get on-set pictures and I literally hid in a bush and took a picture of Ray Fiennes. Wow. wow. That Harry Potter, Pearl Harry Harbor, Potter. the amount of pictures and footage I got from the set of Pearl Harbor was wild. Uh, but yeah. Jesus Christ. Did a lot of that sort of stuff. Uh, but I was on set of George A. Romero's Land of the Dead. So that was nice. Yeah, and I, got to, I got to meet George Romero. And again, right, a Greg yeah. Nicotero joint. Craig Nicotero was doing what they called the splatter unit where he was over with, with loads of zombies 
killing loads of zombies in really interesting ways. I don't remember what we actually saw on set, though. Good story, Chris. Right, <laughs> next question, real quick. From Max underscore Greenland. What would be the best horror mashup akin to Freddy versus Jason, but clearly much better? And for some reason, Max Greenland has stipulated that we can only use films since 2010. I say pish posh and tish tosh and nonsense and piffed to that. You can use whatever films you want to use. I'm sorry for my language. That's how strongly I feel about it. Throw yourself so it's a something versus a something. So it doesn't have to be something versus a something, but it could be something appearing in, like Ray Nicolette appearing in Out of Sight and Jackie Brown. <laughs> Maybe uh, it could be something like that, or it could be it could be like um, the insidious. I, I you know for for me, the insidious ghouls from the further and the demons from the further they kind of belong naturally in the world of the country, and I think a lot of people mm-hmm. conflate those two universes, those mm-hmm. two movies. So that would be quite cool. If you're talking about killer dolls, Annabelle from the Country movies, who wouldn't like to see Annabelle versus Megan mm-hmm. versus Chucky? I would be bang up for that. That would be very, very cool. But by all means, have at it. An American werewolf in London versus an American werewolf in Paris. <laughs> we can oh, find the same. What, like practical werewolves versus CGI ones. <laughs> yes. Amazing. <laughs> um, I'd like to see the Bab- Babadook up. Against somebody, maybe so the, the Beach Boys version. Ba 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 dook, ba 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 dook. Just the Babadook. Okay. Uh, maybe I don't know. I'm trying to think who would be good against the Babadook. The Babadook oh. versus Bo from Bo is Afraid. No, I was actually, I was literally just looking this up because I had a memory of there being a meme which was the Babadook with another horror character. Okay. And it's, I believe, it's the Babadook with uh, Pennywise <laughs> as a sort of gay icon couple has become like a thing yeah I could see that yeah so well so, they, they move so, in together yeah so less a versus and more a plus more it shipping have, it doesn't yeah. have to more be a versus it doesn't I, well, I quite like that less of a versus maybe this is what would stop Pennywise being so fucking miserable all the time exactly and ripping people's arms off in, in storm drains get him out of the sewers you know get him into the light or something yeah a move into a basement that's much better than a sewer <laughs> Could you, what would happen if Dr. William Weir pitched up on the Nostromo? Ooh. 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 Well, okay, alien so, versus hell itself. No, but, yeah, but this is the mm. thing, but better than that, better than that, what would happen if the alien, instead of ending up on the Nostromo, ended up on the event horizon? How would it fare? Oh my God, this ship is doubly fucked. Yeah, that's right. This ship is, oh, fuck. <laughs> um, yeah, that'd be a lot. That'd be a good one. Oh, here's the other one. What if... Okay, okay. They fuck you at the event horizon. <laughs> they, they fuck you at the gateway to hell. They fuck you at the gateway to hell. What if uh, Dr. William Weir or the alien, the xenomorph itself, picked up the lament configuration <laughs> and Whoa. completed it, thus opening another gateway to hell and the fucking Cenobites come out what? And Pinhead is there and it's Pinhead and Dr. William Weir and possibly the alien as well having a great big old space party. The sex <laughs> I mean, would be off it's the charts. Yeah. It is kinktacular. I am not comfortable with this. Don't you kink shame the Cenobites? Cenobites. <laughs> I feel like kink shaming the Cenobites is okay. Oh my actually. God, you're so judgy. We're far more sex positive on this podcast. Yes. Wow. If you want to put barbed wire through your nipples, then that <laughs> is... It, that is your business. That is, that yeah. is your yeah. business. Oh, and, you, and yes, you have my vote in the next general election. <laughs> oh, Who boy. are we to judge? <laughs> Who among <laughs> us has not, <laughs> in fact? Oh, oh, God. I used to live in the country. 
I'm sure there have country? been a couple of times that barbed wire has interfaced with my nipple. What? But Bar- acci- barbed wire or barbed bar- wire? Barbed wire. No, uh, accidentally. Like when you're trying to climb into a field to get a ball back. A what? And the farmers have barbed wire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the farmers have barbed wire up to stop you doing that very, very thing. Right. I wasn't fucking a cow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I just want to make that absolutely is, clear. I is, don't like your tone. This, this whole podcast is my lament configuration. <laughs> I really don't know what's happening. I, okay. Can I you lo- name? I loved Mui. Can you name all of the configurations of the puzzle box? No. 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 Okay. Well, that, was, that was a short question. <laughs> uh, I know there are more than There's one. There's quite a few. Well, the yeah. recent one it expanded the mythology, didn't it? It so, did, yeah. 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 But no, I can't. Do- can you complete a Rubik's Cube? No. Um, Ooh, see, you can't complete a Rubik's can. Cube, you wouldn't be able to complete the lament configuration. I, I feel like the rewards for completing the Rubik's Cube are, are more palatable than the rewards <laughs> for completing the Lament configuration. As I can tell, you get a sticker. Yeah. You do not get a, you know, something stuck through you. No, you don't. very different. You don't get a spiked chain up the jacksy. Yeah. That's not fun. It's not good. John, you've been remarkably quiet. <laughs> I, I have nothing to add to this conversation. Um, I've got an answer for this question. Remember, there was a question. Was there? Uh, <laughs> Do you remember? In the, in, the, in the midst of time. And it, it, the answer is the f- a film that already exists, which is uh, The Cabin in the Woods. The Cabin in the Woods. Ah. The end of The Cabin in the Woods. Versus, versus Predator. Is versus a Predator. masterful film, but is famous for something very important. Do you know what that is? It was our very first spoiler special podcast. Oh, was it? Yep. Yes, that's what that's what that is what that film is famous for. It was our very, very first spoiler special, and I believe it's about twelve minutes. It's about long. twelve minutes long. It's not actually a spoiler special. It's a spoiler special interview with Drew Goddard. It yeah. wasn't a spoiler special interview with Drew Goddard. It was a proper interview with Drew Goddard, and then we at the end we went, "Can we ask you some spoiler questions?" And then we ran that on the the podcast as the first one. Yeah, mm. uh, yeah. I think the first proper one is the Avengers. Which was more than twelve minutes, forty-five minutes long. <laughs> oh, those were the days when we could be brief, concise, and to the point. Yes, I'm looking at the clock for this week's podcast, yep. <laughs> and I'm thinking it's time to wrap this bad boy up. There's loads. There's fucking loads. You could have zombies from Romero's Dawn of the Dead, with the zombies from Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead, and you could Which have Shaun of the Dead, and Ash would be in there with Pazuzu having a great big old party. But I like Dr. William Weir and Pinhead having a great big old spiky chain fuck party up in space. <laughs> I like that. I have nothing to add. Imagine John Hurt going, no. bleh, 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 and no. then it's it's no. Pinhead erupting no. out of John Hurt's chest, going, no. "Here's Johnny." That would be amazing. That would not be amazing. If you want to have your question read out in the Empire Podcast, you can get in touch with us on Twitter. I'm at Chris Hewitt. Uh, you can slide on my DMs. You can reply to any of my tweets once you stop laughing, of course, or you can reply to a panicked shout out. As this week's questioners found much to their <laughs> chagrin probably uh, should we have a guest we have two guests we have Matt Johnson the director and star of Blackberry or we have Eddie Izzard star of Dr. Jekyll who do you want? Ooh. Eddie Izzard yeah cake or death? <laughs> cake, cake or death? always cake I mean, always friend, cake I feel like they're both cake I feel like we don't want to you know besmirch no I'm not saying that Eddie Izzard is cake and Matt Johnson is Death. Death. No, that's, that wouldn't be accurate. That, that would be not be accurate. No. Eddie Ezra would be a good death, though. Not as in... And Blackberry would be a good cake. Yeah. And Blackberry had a good death. It did. What is Spoiler. happening? <laughs> Anywho. <laughs> so anyway, Hammer's back. Hooray! Stop. Hammer time. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, Hammer is back after a few years away from the big screen. 
it lay dormant for a few years, but now it is back, back, back. Um, theatrical impresario John Gore, whose name has not been made up, is a real name. John Gore has taken over Hammer, and their first film was an acquisition. It is Dr. Jekyll, directed by Joe Stevenson and starring Eddie Izzard as Dr. Nina Jekyll, who, yeah, it turns into Rachel Hyde because it's inspired by the Robert Louis Stevenson story. I figured, yeah, from the yeah. name. That was kind of a clue. It's a clue, but there's mm. no Hyde in the name this time around. It's just Dr. Jekyll, which right. is interesting. Okay. It's uh, hiding in plain sight. Indeed, indeed. Anyway, I spoke to Eddie Izzard. Uh, she was in a hotel room in London. I was in my room in Greenwich. Ne'er the twain shall meet, but we had a good old chat about Dr. Jekyll anyway and had good many things, including, you'll like this, James, uh, Eddie's attempts to break into Pinewood Studios when she was just a nipper. Really? Mm-hmm. Successfully. All right, here's Eddie Izzard talking about Dr. Jekyll. Enjoy! Well, Eddie, uh, yeah, this is the morning after the night before for you. you the, the premiere was last night. How, how's that for you? That was great uh, to be out in Leicester Square. Great to uh, when you're going to premieres there. As a kid, I used to, uh, in my 20s, I was performing at Covent Garden. Um, it's lovely to go to an opening with your name above the title. And uh, the people came, the young people seemed to like it. It's, it's, there's, there's an element of humor in it. I mean, which Hammer came together at the time that we were making it. So it was, it was designed as a Joe Stevenson film. It is, it is Joe's film. Um, and then Hammer came in um, uh, at the time that we were filming it. And then it's changed slightly how, how Hammer is, but now it's it's the reboot of Hammer. So, um, and in Hammer, there is an idea of a slightly tongue-in-cheek, a slight attitude in your horror film. But this this hopefully is uh, spooky and twisted and, and weird, but there is this element of dark humour in it, yeah. which I didn't aim to put in, but came out because when... It is the story of Dr. Nina Jekyll, but also Rachel Hyde, this other character uh, that is in one person. And um, when, towards the end, Rachel really takes over, it's it's a place I went to which was kind of unhooked from me. So I I just let the, the room, the atmosphere, the characters, the situation, the scene kind of drive it. And I was allowed to be slightly off book as well. So anyway, it, it seems to work, and um, I'm very happy about it. I was going to ask about that because it does seem to be. I mean, this is there's a there's a sequence towards the end. We won't give it away, obviously, but uh, where there's a fair amount of exposition that Rachel has to take care of as well. But yeah. you also seem to be going off book, as you say. There's a fair amount of, of improv, or it seems to be a fair amount of improv in there. So, how difficult is that to to go off book, but also have to hit those those points? It. It is fine because generally I was doing the script. I might add a comment in on the, when when literally moving through the geography of, of the room um, and the, the script was a, a little fluid in that situation, in those uh, those end scenes. So Joe was happy to, to, as long as I checked it through with him, to give me a latitude there. And also it could be edited around. That, you know, I could go to a certain place or I could add something, um, be it of a dark line or twisted line or something that comes out slightly off-ball uh, or black humorish. Um and he could just edit it, keep it or lose it as he as he wished. So that was um, something which was, 
it was great to have that freedom to do. And it, I did, as I was saying, I did not want to, to put anything comedy in because having come from comedy, to to touch something that hits comedic is not something that I, I want to do. Yeah. But if it's black humor, if it is dark humor, if it fits in with this story or character, then I feel it's okay. And initially when I watched the screening and some certain people reacting in a certain way, uh, there were shocks and then there were occasional wry exclamations of, of laughs because it's, it's, it's so weird. Uh, or twisted um and i thought that's not good and i actually think now that that is good i think that will work with it um and if you look at the pantheon of of hammer horror back through the ages which people of a certain age maybe the younger generation don't know so well um it's it it fits nicely with peter cushing and um and the the fantastic actors that were going through all uh, all those those episodes at Bray Studios things, and I filmed at Bray Studios as well. <laughs> so Velvet Goldmine was filmed at Bray Studios, so that was kind of amazing to be back there. You could feel the history in the in the in the building around you, I guess. Yes, you'd you'd like to you'd like to feel it more so, but it, it does actually feel like a studios because that's the thing is when I was filming in American studios in Hollywood, you think. Can I feel the films in all these different studios? But they're essentially a big barn that all the stuff gets <laughs> taken away from. And you can't palp- palpably feel the the history of films that has gone through an, um, the Universal lot or the Paramount lot um, or the, the Fox lot, which I've, I've been on, 20th Century Fox, and, and filmed on. Um, yeah. But still, uh, yeah, I love that. I was a kid who broke into Paramount's uh, – no, I broke into Pinewood Studios sorry, when I was 15. Like Steven Spielberg was breaking the Universal lot. I think he was about 17 when he was doing that. Yes. I got an I think his career jump started much quicker than mine, uh, and mine had to do a bit of fine wine development first. What was your Pinewood experience like? Well, that was great. They 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 turfed me out. Yeah, it was seventy seven, right? And uh, I was so keen to get into films from the age of twelve. I decided I was going to be an actor from the age of seven. So at the age of twelve, I've discovered these films that I loved. Those were humans in them. So I. And I'm very driven and analytical. So at about twelve, I'm going, okay, how do I, how do I get into that? I know no one in this industry. It's a far off Valhalla of a place. What I don't even know where it happens. Anything. So I started studying the credits on TV shows. That's all you had. Yeah. I mean, you could go to films and, and write down the credits, but uh, this bit, best boy gaffer. I didn't know what these these titles meant. That wasn't really helping me. But it was. I, I'm pretty sure it was. Um, Battle of Britain, and it ends up with a single title card for Pinewood Studios, which is very unusual. They must have had a deal because um, I know that that uh, Battle of Britain didn't actually sell like crazy at the box office yeah. as they hoped, like the longest day did. Xanax film, and um, anyway, so uh, I, I I got the name and address off that, and I tracked it down from a map. I just got a board of a map, and Ivor Ivor Heath uh, Pinewood Studios, Ivor Heath Buckinghamshire. And I and I got trains and tubes, trains and then buses to to get there. And went up to the front door and said, "I'm going to be in films. Can I come in?" And they went, "No, <laughs> no way." And they just sent me away. Uh, I think they might have. I, I think they might have sworn at me, but they might not. I don't know. And so I just found another entrance. There was another entrance, the main, which is now the main entrance. And I just brazenly marched in as if I was working for Stanley Kubrick as a runner. Yeah. I got in. 
That's amazing. And then 25 years later, you went back to that security guard and you, and you said, now I'm in movies. <laughs> so- no, I, I, no, I literally about two years ago, I, I was running past that. I was running marathons past that. I thought, let's try this again. And I was with a couple of friends. I said, can I come in? And they went, oh, you're that person. And because uh, I'm, I'm kind of niche famous, you know, like I'm, um, I'm what's that, an international minor celebrity, I think, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I don't do the mainstream stuff. I do the more offbeat than each, you know, I've got Hamlet coming up in January, just done Great Expectations, touring in different languages in doing stand up. And now um, Dr. Jekyll. Uh, as a trans character and um so they 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 thought oh yeah i think you that they, all right you could come in uh they they talked to the security people and then someone came down and they let us in and they showed us around the whole place so again which i knew i'd, I'd already filmed there so um um yeah it was great to be back amazing amazing uh so uh, obviously over the years this has been a a story that's been adapted a number of times. And yep. uh, most actors who play Dr. Chekyll know that at some point they're going to get their teeth into Hyde as well. I think possibly with the exception yep. of Ralph Bates <laughs> from, from Hammer History, you know, who was in Dr. Chekyll and Sister Hyde. He didn't get to play Hyde. Um, oh, but- right. I, well, my, one of my keen things, I didn't watch all the others. Okay. I made sure I didn't do it. Okay. So if, you can, if you take me down that thing, my point was read the novella and then where do I go? Because the fact that the, the, I'm a trans woman and I'm playing a trans character, it was open gender casting. You know, it was off to a man, to a woman, and and um, people turned it down and or went for it and said yes, maybe, and then no, and then offered to me as a trans person. But it it doesn't matter because it's the, it's the darkness and the light of these two uh, characters that is into play. Whether they're trans, gay, straight, cis, male, cis, female, it it really doesn't matter. So. Um, it's just yeah, you know, 21st century casting, and um, and I wanted. I took the novella. The novella is a novella. It is a yeah. slim read, mm. and if you look at it, a lot is left to your imagination. Which I don't think uh, Robert Louis Stevenson has decided to do this or or planned this, but it means that anyone could adapt it. Because what ad- adaptations were happening in the 1800s? I think he wrote it in the 1800s. Um, but it means you can go anywhere with your imagination, and that's what. I did, and I had to get uh, a Rachel who was who was sufficiently different to the Nina, Dr. Nina Jekyll, and the Rachel Hyde had to be, the character had to be different. But what we did, instead of a transformation, which often happens in the, the, the Hyde, because in the book he actually loses, he changes height, which is obviously not an easy thing to do unless you're acting in a ditch or something. But this was more that the character in each scene, you can't tell who is who is running each scene, which yeah. character is in charge. You can sort of guess, and then you think, am I guessing? And then you later on hear, oh, no, that was another, that wasn't Nina, that was Rachel coming there. So, and then at the end, Rachel has to take control, and and that's where you go full Rachel, and it's, yeah, that I, I just unhooked. <laughs> and uh, I understand as well, that was the day that Hammer executives turned up. So did, did, yeah. that, did that impact upon your performance? Because you're getting lost in Rachel, and then all of a sudden... Here's some suits. No, it's, uh, when I'm on the set, there's no one else there. When when you start film acting, there's so much equipment, so much paraphernalia, it, it gets in your mind's eye. And there's lock it down, lock it down, we're going for it. Oh, my God, there's all this money rolling, and I better not screw it up. That's your early when you're doing your early scenes. Now I don't see it. I don't hear it. Um, I'm basically in the scene for the moment I get on the set. And all the, the we, we shot basically two weeks of shooting in three days. So it was very intense at the end. And um, and the script was was adjusting in real time. And 
um, I was not sure where I, I just I just let Rachel take over. So it's I'm right I'm right inside that film. I'm right inside those scenes, um, and that's the way I, the way I like to uh to do it where you just unhook and the script and the thing you know you know where you're going but it's not it's you don't feel it you're just living it it's it's interesting to me as well um that the the, the film seems to me to be in its own way very quietly groundbreaking i mean you were you were talking about this idea that you know nina and rachel are, are trans but that's not important to the plot the, the plot is about yeah. something else the themes of this movie are about something else it is just presented to the audience as a matter-of-fact thing. Uh, and from your point of view, what did that mean to you? Um, well, great, because it, well, I, I was saying in interviews last night at the at the premiere, um, this is it's 21st century casting. As you'll know, yeah. um, Glenda Jackson, having been a politician, came out, played King Lear, not Queen Lear, and everyone goes, fine. If you watch casting in, in plays nowadays in the 21st century, particularly in plays and in, in films as well, uh, Women could be playing men, men, traditionally male roles. Men could be playing traditionally female roles. It's mixing it up. Skin colors don't matter. It's the way it should be going. It's making it interesting. And and, and instead, it is about something else. It's about power, and how power can can corrupt. And and it's interesting. Interesting to me. I, I wondered in your life as you became famous, as you became an international minor celebrity, whether there were moments in your life where you felt that you were gaining power and whether there was a point where you could have felt that corrupt you. I've heard about it in other people. Have I seen it in other people? And a bit, I've heard it more in other people, in other people's reactions as they moved up the ladder. I, you have to check yourself. You know, you, you want to be able to dial up your, well, your ego has got to work for performance. You need yeah. this ego, uh, but you need to be able to dial it down off stage. But the power in, in, in uh, Dr. Jekyll, it's, it's like an evil power that, that Rachel has that has come through her and through all the characters and all the personas that this power has been through. It can, they could have been male characters or female or trans or whatever. Mm. It didn't matter. It just travels and, and, and transmutes. So, and that is a, that is a question for our times or for, for humanity in general. The evil thing, is it baked into you in your genetics or is it learned? Can you encourage, can you train people who are twisted and evil um, away from that into a, into a positive light? The, the, the Jekyll and Hyde story is, is an idea that this is a fixed thing, a, a spirit that just goes through people, and, and that, is the, that is the horror of it, the, uh, the Jekyll horror that travels around, and it could be in us, or bits of it could be in us. In terms of your stand-up over the years, has the dichotomy between... Nina and and Rachel, is that something that you felt before? In a way, like when you're about to go on stage, the ego has to rise up in order for you to become that that Eddie that we saw on stage in front of thousands of people. But are you a completely different Eddie three seconds before you walk on stage? No, I don't think so because that implies that I've got a Rachel dark spirit going through me at all times. <laughs> I think all of us maybe have the potential to go. To the dark side, you know, to go all Star Wars on it, go Darth Vader on it. But um, if you if you take Germany between thirty three and forty five, there was one person there who encouraged people to reach into their twisted side. 
but and you know what happened and this was not the german people the german people before 33 were just like any other people of any other country since 45 they have been but in those 12 years hitler kidnapped the country and encouraged the baser instincts of people so and i always worried that if i were living in nazi germany i was going through those times would i in 33 would i have bought into hitler would any of us would all of us there but for the grace of humanity go all of us and i hope i would have pushed back if you watch seeing as you are empire if you watch Casablanca, yeah. So uh, Conrad Veit, I think it is, yes, uh, he's playing the Nazi. He's a German guy who'd got out of Germany because he hated the Nazis. So he's playing a Nazi, but he hates them. And then you've got uh, the guy who's playing the the Czech Republic uh, freedom fighter. Um, he's another German, a Paul yes. Henry. Paul Henry, yeah, yeah. It's Henry. It's how it should be. But I think yeah. they. He because people couldn't deal with the E and the I. They, he, I think he said it's Henry, but yeah, Henry should have been. Uh, so we might as well go back to the, the German pronunciation. He's German too, and Conrad Veit got him because he was already in England and got him out or got him permission to get out so that he could or got permission to stay in Britain. So you got two strong, positive, good faith German people saying this Nazi state is not us, and we're out of here. Yeah. And they they both ended up in America. And they both ended up in Casablanca, playing both sides. So when you watch the thing where the Conrad uh, Veidt is singing the 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 German marching song, he gets the band going that in Rick's bar, yeah, yeah. and then Conrad Veidt goes does the uh, Marseillaise and, and it goes French and the and the feelings that uh, engenders. Those are two German guys who are leading that, who are who are yeah. anti, currently anti-Nazi, um, which is kind of beautiful uh, to see that even though one is playing. A horrible Nazi. I've uh, massively enjoyed talking to you. It's been a huge pleasure. And uh, and best luck for the future as well. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so that was Eddie Izzard. Now it's time to delve deep into this week's movie news. Please, please, I beg of you. Has there been any? Has there been any? There's been some. Hooray! It's not the biggest news in the world, but there is movie news this week. First and foremost, I think, is the fact that we've seen pictures now of the Lego Dune June! Collection, which is freaking amazing. They, they've built an ornithopter, the, the, sort they of, have. the thing that they fly around in. Do course, I make I've you actually, ornithopter? Of course, I've actually been in an ornithopter <laughs> and, and All right. fiddled with the controls. I'm just Fine. saying, it's pretty did. great. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's that's genuinely thrilling. And about 20 people sent me the link to that. And I want to thank each and every one of them because you're correct. Yes, I wanted 20 to people also sent me the link. the link. Crucially, no one sent me the Lego. Well, no, but, you know, hopefully, given... Well, look, yes, okay, fine. But, you know, it's a start, James. It's a start. It's very kind Mm -hmm. of people to send the link. Also, in great news this week, Paddington in Peru has a release date, and it is coming out next November, November 8th of 2024. Not soon enough, but Mm -hmm. we'll take it, given... We will take it. That's exciting. And hey, suck it, America. Because we get it three months ahead of you. Ha ha ha. Three months? Ha ha ha. Wow. Yes, that's right. I'm going to spoil it at my first opportunity. Yes, that's right. Paddington dies. Very sad. You were a monster. Very, very sad. He, he drowns in a fat of marmalade. That is awful. Do we know who's directing that yet? Yes, we do. It's it's been it's finished. It's finished. I hope he. I hope he knows. Dougal Wilson. (laughs) Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Good. Well, I'm glad I'm on top of the news. (laughs) You let Dougal do a Paddington movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's very, Um, very. Well, you're the reviews editor, John. You. I yes, I wait until they come to the cinemas. Now, I'm I'm not interested in this uh, 
news business news business or or coming attractions or any of that yeah. stuff but uh so paul king obviously is not directing this may be a nice segue into uh plugging the magazine maybe we should do that because there's a new issue oh, yeah. of empire magazine out yes. today as we are recording this yesterday as you listen to this if you listen on friday two days ago if you listen to saturday obviously and so on and so forth paul king is not directing this I interviewed Paul King for the new issue of Empire uh, for a Wonka piece uh, all about Wonka and how he brought the world of Wonka to life. And I asked him why he didn't direct Paddington 3 and he told me and then I asked him again and he told me again and then I asked him again and then he told me again and then at some point someone came in and said can you ask about Wonka please? And at this point I was in tears. Yeah, I I was going to ask at which point did you start crying? Was it before the first question? or was It was before the first question. Okay. The first 10 minutes was a hard stare. But please, but please. I put him in his place. But why Paul? Yeah, Yeah. all that. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, so he was brilliantly professional. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's a great guy and I'm very, very much looking forward to Wonka not least because it has songs from Neil Hannon, a.k.a. The Divine Comedy, <sighs> James's favourite band. James thinks they should be banned. But uh, Neil Hannon is a genius and uh, one of the greatest living Northern Irishmen. I know the competition isn't great. Hey. <laughs> Come on, let's be honest. Yeah, there's okay, there's right. him, the bloke from Ash. Michael Collins. <laughs> Michael Collins. <laughs> yes, Michael Collins, the famous Northern Irishman. <laughs> Oh dear! He me. did go to the moon, I suppose. <laughs> he did go to the moon. He did go to the moon. He went to Button Moon. No. He followed no. Mr. Spoon. Button Moon. Uh, Button Moon uh, says no. <laughs> so anyway, the issue though, the new issue of Empire. Oh yes, that's the right. The new issue of Empire yeah. is out. That is very exciting news, and it has on the cover the Star of Sea, Jason Momoa <laughs> as Aquaman, Arthur Curry. Uh, in Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. And I'm pretty excited about that. I am pretty excited about that. I got my subs cover today and it's beautiful. It is beautiful. I love the subs cover. I like the main cover as well. It's quite, it's icier than you would think from Mm. an Aquaman cover, but the subs cover is made of ice. Actual, I I mean, it's not cold. Like, it's not like wet. Isn't that a bit... And it's not going to melt. Like, it's Aren't not people like, just going to get a puddle of water in an you oven? You can look. lick the subs issue. Like your, start, your tongue I wouldn't won't... lick a subs cover if it was glazed in honey. <laughs> well, this one's glazed in ice. So you can do, but your tongue won't stick to it. But it looks lovely. It's a really lovely subs cover. Mm. It's one of my favourites, actually. I thought it was great. Well, listen, I can't give away next issue's subs cover. I can't because I have no power to it. I don't have any issues here anyway. But next issue, this issue's good, all right? But the way subscriptions work, if you subscribe after an issue comes out, you don't get that issue. All I'm going to say is next month's subs cover is a true, true world exclusive that if you are interested in movies, you should be excited about. So if you yeah. take it from me, subscribe now. I, I, I will say when, when that subs cover was confirmed in the office, there was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of excitement. People are very excited about this subs cover. This is not a joke. We, this is yeah. a huge, huge thing. Um, it's, it's, it's me. But, <laughs> it's, but I'm, I'm drawing it. But yes. More imminently, more pressingly, yes. more, more pressingly, currently, yes. we have the exciting Aquaman the Lost Kingdom cover, which is yes. very, very good. Uh, we spoke, There can be only one, James one in this particular case, and we spoke to him all about the film, which is very exciting. What else have we got inside the issue? Saltburn, Emerald Fennell's great, next great. film is out there, which is very exciting indeed. A little bit of a psychological thriller. She wrote. She wrote the she feature wrote. exclusively for Empire, full Fennell. Did she get Unleashed. notes on it, or was it allowed to go through without any... Nobody gives Emerald Fennell notes. Uh, so that was exciting. What else have we got? We've got Paul King. We've got Wonka. 
So he explains himself and justifies why he didn't do Paddington 3. That's very exciting. Uh, so we go. But also all... talks about Wonka. <laughs> he did also yes, talk yeah. about the uh, world's first chockbuster, uh, yes. Wonka the movie. Yes. Which is pretty, pretty exciting as well. Uh, there's a really badly written feature in there on Society of the Snow. <laughs> that wasn't very good. That really bored me. Who wrote that? Oh, Chris Hewitt! It was written by Chris Hewitt. How was that, yes. Chris? Tell I'm us afraid, about Society I'm afraid of the Snow. I wrote two features this issue. I'm so sorry, but you can skip past them really, really quickly. Or, you know, <laughs> in or... fairness, that one got actual praise from the director. Oh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. On, uh, on Twitter this morning. So. This, this is the new J.A. Bayona, Bayona film. And, uh, yes. This is, about the, <laughs> this is about the plane crash in 1972 uh, in the Andes. Uh, the Uruguayan rugby team whose plane famously crashed in the Andes in 1972 and the survivors um, were basically declared dead. There was a, a search and rescue attempt that, that didn't work out. Um, and they were declared dead because they were in snow-covered mountains and they had no food. And this story has been adapted several times, famously, of course, by Frank Marshall uh, in, as a live in 1992, I want to say. And uh, this is J.A. Bayona's take on a Spanish-language take. It's on Netflix. I've seen it a couple of times. It's an absolutely incredible movie. And I was on set in Madrid to watch the plane crash sequence being shot I spoke to J.A. Bayona, I spoke to Michael Cicchino, the composer, because I was also at Abbey Road for the scoring session. I spoke to his producer, Belen Atienza. Enzo Fogrinchik, who plays, uh, he's essentially the lead of the movie, he plays a character called Numa, uh, who's one of, the, uh, one of the, the people who crash lands in the snow. And I spoke to an amazing guy called Nando, Para- Nando Parado, who was one of the survivors and is one of the most incredible people I've ever spoken to. Just one of the most profound experiences I've ever had. His his take on life and being alive was really, truly humbling. Uh, and so this is, uh, the, the if you read um, the Wonka feature, that'll, that you, all the funny jokes and puns that I, uh, that I am renowned for are in there. There are no jokes and no puns in the Society of the Snow feature. I tried, but... Um, but uh, yeah, they, they just didn't fit. So that's a more serious and more somber piece, but a more serious and somber film, which I think is absolutely amazing. Also inside yes. the issue. <laughs> yes. Well, you asked me. Fucking asked me. No, so no, what do you want me good, to do? It's good. I'm glad that you were able to read out the entire feature for us. That was nice. Uh, but also inside the issue, we uh, have... I remember that when you're doing a review later on, and you just sent <laughs> me through the first half an hour of the Priscilla. film. Priscilla! Not Queen of the Desert, but Sophia Coppola's Priscilla about Priscilla Presley. Ooh. And we spoke to Sophia Coppola all about that. Another exciting film as well. Uh, but Chris, I'm going to ask you to talk about the next one because we have a very... I wouldn't have... <laughs> I'll do 10 minutes. Well, well, if you can do it all in the voice, we've got Werner Herzog. Werner Herzog, do you say? Do you say Werner Herzog? Voice. The other voice, nice Chris. Oh, yes. Werner Herzog is in this issue of Empire magazine. This the desolate wasteland of the human heart. Uh, it is pure Ferner. It's an amazing. It's amazing. Interview. Uh, He's yeah, preparing his really memoir great. at the moment, which is why we spoke to him. I read that today. That interview is it's so so good. Yes. It's pure. It's it's. He talks about how he doesn't dream anymore, and that he had his last dream. He only dreams of banalities. Life, in many ways, is a dream of the sandwich. <laughs> My last dream, I dreamt about a sandwich. <laughs> I dream only of ant. But not of dick. <laughs> I ask myself why. Just an idea. It's so Werner Herzog's in the issue, which Ooh. is very, very exciting. But he, even he is not the most important person that we spoke to for this issue. In fact, well, probably the most important we spoke to, but not the most important person we spoke about because we speak to one of the stars of Hollywood's <laughs> Golden Age. In many ways, the biggest star of Hollywood's Golden Age. <laughs> I'm so Age. afraid of what you're going to say next. It's Jimmy the Raven. Um... 
And that's not to say he's like a, an international assassin and that's his code name. It's literally a raven called Jimmy who's been in over a thousand films during Hollywood's Golden Age. Um, um, and we have an entire feature about sure Jimmy the Raven. Are you sure you spoke to the actual <laughs> <laughs> Well, no. Raven. We did not speak to Jimmy the Raven, raven is... crucially. But, but only because he's not a great interview. Uh, not, what not would be in Stuff to Melt It? He was surprisingly still and quiet. Mm, yeah. Can yeah. I get any traction, by the way, for my theory that when you die, your name should become past tense? I think it would, it would really... Cruited. Precisely. It would really, really help. Like, just imagine if you were in casual conversation, you went, Chris Hewitt. Well, no one knows whether I'm alive or dead from that, right? Right. But if you, but say, if you say, oh, hey. I, used to, I went to school with Chris. I went to school with Chris. Oh, and they go, oh, no. How? And it was a combine harvester. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'd just it's be the James way you wanted died. to go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Barbed wire through the nipple. <laughs> he was trying to climb into a, a field. <laughs> not to fuck a cow. Not to fuck a cow. <laughs> if that's what you think. I've never fucked a cow. I think that's very important to establish. specific. Thank God this wasn't during the obituary. This would have been very, very hard to segue out of. Okay. Anyway, James, yes, yes. hello. Many, many other James things. James died. The issue. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. James died. Did he why John Nugent well. did? Helena Hard? That's maybe. That doesn't yeah, really work. That doesn't that really work. Like that's more of a that's porn, porn name. name. <laughs> uh, anyway, also in the issue, we talked to Andrew Hay about all of us strangers. Hey. Uh, Boydie goes full RTD, the notorious oh, RTD. Fuck Boyd into the magazine. Uh, talks to Russell T. Davis about the return of David Tennant in Doctor Who, which Woo. is very, very exciting. Uh, some twat bangs on about Argyle, <laughs> which is good too. Uh, I mean, that's great. There's great stuff. Great stuff inside the issue. A lot of great stuff inside. You yeah, haven't even mentioned the best section. Which is John's section, which has got lots of reviews, reviews, many, many wonderful reviews um, that we then <laughs> disagree with when we come to <laughs> talk about them on the show. Shut up, Chris! Shut up! Shut up! Cut that out, Chris! Uh, ben Wheatley's in my section, um, which I'm told is called Final Cut. There's the ranking billion dollar movies. We mm. rank those. That's good. There's a bit about Powell and Pressburger. Woo! Oh yeah, uh, I did that. And some other yes. That's very good. Thanks very much. Yeah, you spoke yeah. to Thelma Schoonmaker. 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 Not Schoonmaker. It's officially Schoonmaker. Cool. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and there's some other stuff in there as well. But it's very, very good. It's a really good issue. It's on sale right now in all good, evil, and virtual news agents. And we can highly, highly recommend it. How highly can I recommend it? This highly. Oh, wow. Amazing. <laughs> it's good it's a really good issue. I got mine this morning. It's such a good issue. It's such a great issue. Uh, anything else has happened in the world of actual movie news? A couple of little bits and pieces. Um, Barbara Broccoli says she hasn't even begun work on the next Bond, which, I mean, it seems a little bit, you know. What, 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 what are she, you doing? I mean, she, do it's her, she has one job. Yeah, but in fairness, like, maybe you need a bit of breathing space after one... No, one no, no. Well, they anyway. used to shit these out. <laughs> yeah, that's not really the way. Anywho. <laughs> not really the way. Listen, they, they shot one a year out in the 1960s. Then they, they yeah. started taking a year off yeah. in the 70s and the 80s. And now, the, eons pass. Literally, eons pass literally, between yeah. Bond projects. And that's okay. It's not okay, it's not Helen. Okay. It's totally it's fine. Not okay. You've got a reality show to keep you going. It's fine, oh guys. My God. Anyway, uh, also in the not happening yet news, Deadpool three is in release limbo because of the strikes. Obviously, yeah, that um, and everything else. As is, I'm afraid, Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning no! Part Two. Now, I knew we all thought that they could somehow negotiate the strikes and still shoot twenty percent of the movie or sixty percent of the movie in time for a release date next June. But it appears they have decided that that might be a challenge. The problem they have is that they, they can't use any actors. That is a problem, because it is not an animated movie. No, you know, it's not. Uh, and, and they can't not... pull a bowfinger. 
and just no. shoot Tom Cruise walking around. Because I just imagine Tom Cruise in his natural everyday life. I assume goes to the he shops, swings off things and yeah, jumps clings through to planes and, and yeah. sets his balls on fire in, in a Tesco's and, you know, and things like that that you would naturally want to put in your movie. Ethan Hunt is a living manifestation of destiny. He's just set fire to his balls at a Tesco in Crouch End. Is there a Tesco and Crouch End? I don't know. Is that where this trips up this story? I think anyway, that's <laughs> moving the on. You're right. Yeah. Um, also, uh, Zack Snyder news, there's going to be a Rebel awesome. Moon prequel comic uh, expanding the story. That's so exciting. That's, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, he's, he's got, I think, well, you, you said it in your feature a couple of months ago. There is a lot more story there than we're even going to see in these yes. two films. So he's clearly um, bringing some of that to us. I was privy to a, a whiteboard that will blow your fucking mind. I, I am... Honestly, not surprised. I would be surprised if he wasn't trying to blow our minds. So that seems about right. I'll be disappointed. Yeah. yeah. Anything else? Anything uh, else? There were trailers this week for Wicked Little Letters, which has a lot of swearing in it. It's a red band trailer, people, Ooh. just for language uh, and a bottom. There is a bottom at one point. Not the film Bottoms. There is just a bottom. Bottoms is out next week. Bottoms is out next week, mm-hmm. yes. And there's also a trailer for Bradley Cooper's Maestro, his uh, his account of Leonard Bernstein. So uh, Leonard Bernstein. Worth a look. What do you think of the uh, song from Wish that was revealed this week? We were talking about songs. John obviously worked on the Beatles' new song. <laughs> yes. John, did you also work on the Chris Pine fill-in song, This Is The Thanks I Get from the um, upcoming Wish? Did you, did you yeah, I, I, noodle I didn't, around? I, I neither worked on it, nor... Uh, I, have, I have heard it. it yeah, it's, it, it is a song that has music in. That's the... Probably the kindest thing I can it's, say about It's not it. a grabber right away, I'll be yeah. honest with you. But I have to say, I heard Let It Go. It was at a, at a Frozen preview thing years ago. I heard Let It Go before Let It Go became Let It Go. Mm. And I remember coming away from that going, that wasn't that good. That wasn't that good. And now it's in my head 24 fucking I, 7. Yeah, I don't know. Does some these these songs just, uh, they drill you with submission sort of thing yeah. by, by, if you've like if you've the Cenobites yeah. yeah exactly well after a th- a hearing it a thousand times maybe it becomes good I think I think they often take at least a second listen mm-hmm. um, but uh, look I'm, I think Wish looks great and I'm really in, intrigued to kind of watch it for all the um, essentially Disney Easter eggs in it apart from anything else but I think uh, he's a really interesting character and I'm, I'm kind of intrigued to see what they do with him so fingers crossed uh, other bit of casting news this is very exciting Mike Flanagan is making yeah. his first movie since Doctor Sleep and it is another Stephen King adaptation it is The Life of Chuck which is from If It Bleeds uh, which is we a very, very good collection of novellas and Tom Hiddleston is about to star in that and this is an independent production so therefore it can film without the psych after strike intervening uh, and Karen Gillan and Chiwetel Ejiofor have also signed on to star in that movie, which begins filming any day. Now, it may already be filming for all I know. I believe it is, actually. Uh, which is very exciting. So, yes, that is Mordo, Nebula, and Loki oh, wow. together at last. Also, Mark Hamill and Jacob Tremblay. Oh. So. The Oscar-winning star of The Predator. Apparently, in, in this telling. Uh, apparently yeah. so, yeah. In this multiverse. Uh, Mark Mark Hamill, of course, best known for the fall of the House of Usher. <laughs> yes, Mark Flanagan joint. Mike Flanagan joint. Mark Flanagan joint. Mark Flanagan. Mark Flanagan. Very very sad news. We're going to finish off with uh, the sad news that Richard Roundtree, mm. the legendary star of Shaft, has passed away at the age of eighty-one. And I know that obituaries are meant to be somber and downbeat affairs, but right now I would imagine that. 
pretty much everybody listening to this has Isaac Hayes theme from Shaft going through their head right now. You're probably at the intro, which is the the coolest yeah. intro to any song I would argue ever. Uh, it's an amazing, amazing song. Won an Oscar, the one of the few examples of the best song Oscar category, getting it right for once. Uh, but that's not focused too much on that. It's an amazing song. Uh, Shaft, of course, was a real touchstone, a real landmark of the black exploitation genre. Uh, and Richard Roundtree had an excellent career post Shaft, played the character again a number of times, of course. Most recently in the confusingly named Shaft. Mm-hmm. Uh, which <laughs> Where he was Shaft Senior. <laughs> he was Shaft Senior with three shafts uh, in one frame. Steady. My word. That's a different yeah. type of film. <laughs> yes. And uh, um, very, very exciting indeed. But he was also in other things as well. He was in Brick. He, he was, was in Brick. Was he was emotional. in Blade, the series, with wow. Sticky Fingers. Well, I didn't know that. Sticky Fingers, yes. But there was a lovely tribute from Ryan Johnson about his about his Brick performance mm. and basically saying he didn't need to be as cool as he was hmm. to this bunch of kids who didn't know what they were doing, but he was apparently <laughs> oh, a total gentleman cool. and an utter pro. So Yes. He was in the likes of Speed Racer over the years. He was in the likes of uh, David Fincher 7. We'll be talking about oh, David yeah. Fincher later on as well and he was uh, just a, a, a lovely dependable presence I wonder if he did get a little bit typecast initially as Shaft but he certainly built himself one hell of a career over the years and very very sad indeed to see him go Richard Roundtree who died this week at the age of 81 Alright that's our final guest on this week's show it is Matt Johnson so Matt Johnson is the director and writer and star, one of the stars of Blackberry, which tells the story of how a plucky group of Canadians invented the Blackberry, marketed the Blackberry, sold the Blackberry, became massively rich and successful off the Blackberry, and then the iPhone came along and ruined it all within like seconds. Seconds. Uh, And it is a great film. We gave it four stars. It's been cinemas now for a couple of weeks, but we weren't able to talk to Matt Johnson for various reasons. He only has a BlackBerry. He uses it to communicate. It takes ages to get through to him. And uh, we were only able to get the interview over the line last week. So Alex Godfrey spoke to Matt Johnson. Neither of these people have a microphone. I haven't heard the audio back. Uh, Matt Johnson was apparently in a coffee shop. So this may not be pristine audio, but I, I know my heart of hearts, I believe in my heart of hearts, it's going to be compelling content. Enjoy. Welcome to the Empire, Pod- Empire Podcast. You've made it. You're here. <laughs> Alex, thank you. I'm, I'm, it's a pleasure to be speaking to you again. I mean, you've made it on many levels, but you literally, uh, yeah, you were just, so um, what, what, what was your day today before you realized that this was happening? I, it, we're in the middle of shooting our new movie, um, which originally I had planned to shoot all throughout the United Kingdom, believe it or not. Um, but at the last minute, I pivoted and now it's being shot all throughout the United States. And so I'm in the middle of production, and this morning I was going over um, a ridiculous scene that we need to shoot uh, this Friday. And then I stopped to get a coffee, and now I'm in Ethica Coffee Roasters in Toronto on Sterling Road, one of the best in the city. I had no idea you were making another movie already. Has this been announced? Well, it was our secret project that we were doing um, during the uh, right after um, BlackBerry came out. And it's based on Nirvana, the band, the show, the show that I think was on channel four in your country. And, um, and it's been like a labor of love and a dream project for a long time. And, and there's some people who think that we only made Blackberry to make this movie. And there may be some truth to that because it was very difficult to convince anybody that Nirvana, the band should be a movie. And now, uh, 
and now we're doing it. Should we tell? We should tell people what Nirvana the band the show is for those who don't know, because for people who don't know, it sounds like it's about the band Nirvana. The, the band Nirvana, and you know what? This is a a real. It's just a real monkey on my back that has plagued me my entire career. Why I named that web series after that band when I was a kid is ridiculous. Uh, it's in many ways the when I explain it to people which never really does it justice, is that it's kind of like Flight of the Concords meets, meets Borat, in a way. It's almost as if Flight of the Concords was shot in the real world in Toronto. Um, but, but again, that isn't even really doing it justice. It's, 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 it's a, a bizarre documentary where only two people in the documentary are actors. Yeah, and this is something that's sort of, in some ways, set the tone for everything you've done since, right? And I know it's something... Yes you've always wanted to come back to uh, what is it about that specifically that um keeps rearing its head again and and what would you say about it that um sort of solidified everything that you've done since i think the reason i i'm, I'm so attracted to that show and, and now this movie is that when i was going to film school i was quite rebellious and 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 a, a kind of a petulant annoying student and i rubbed up so much against the rules of the institution which which were generally you can't shoot in public you can't shoot with real people you need to write a script and and i think almost as a reaction to that i thought oh, i'm going to make something that intentionally defies all these rules where i have no idea what i'm doing where i go out and shoot with real people and i just see what happens and I try to inject the story into it post hoc. And for whatever reason, that is kind of how I taught myself how to make movies by, by forcing myself to do it the wrong way. Yeah. And because of that, I, I, I don't know. It's like my friends and I have kind of developed a, a language of production in making it that's so pleasant. It, it, you know what I liken it to? It's like when we're shooting that show, it's like we're all remembering a dream that we had. And we don't know what happened in the dream. We don't know what the story is, but we know it's like, we know it when we see it. Like when something happens and we're like, Oh my God, that was in the dream. It's almost like reality manifests itself in front of us in a way that is very difficult to explain, but has a, a, like a tingling magic feeling in it. And, and if you're listening to this being like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Uh, maybe I'll make an analogy. It, it, it's like you went out into the streets of whatever city you're from with a camera and your friends. And you started shooting a story and then the story started making sense as you shot it but you were shooting it only with real people who did not know they were on camera and and that that just becomes a very addictive process that that um but yeah that's why i keep returning to it well for people who don't know everything you've just said perfectly describes the tone and the feel of your films now it's a little different in case of blackberry um, I'm sure I heard that there was going to be a film about the making of Blackberry and they were talking about the making of Tetris and obviously we've had social network and blah, blah, blah. And I don't think I thought anything of it. And then I heard that you were doing it and I had seen your other films, the dirties, which for those who haven't seen it is this incredible gonzo style film, um, starring you and your friend, um, about what well, is our high school black comic drama about school shootings. And you play a character who gets way too immersed in what's going on and it's this incredibly energetic enthusiastic um and increasingly scary taut 
drama that becomes kind of less and less funny as it goes. And then Operation Avalanche is bonkers. And then this one does feel like those films, but it's like you were given money to do this one. And, <laughs> and it's like, okay, let's see what this guy can do with more of a solid foundation. And you've really got a couple of big names. You've got Glenn Houghton in it. You've got Jay Baruchel, obviously, in the lead. You've got Glenn Houghton from Always Sunny in Philadelphia. You've got Michael Ironside in it, for God's yeah. sake. But um, even within those constrictions and within... Because I mean, in some senses, it is a sort of conventional biopic, but the way you've done it isn't because it feels like anything could happen at any time. It's got that frisson of danger about it that your films have and that unpredictability about it. And I guess it was always going to be like that, right? I mean, do you, you, you seem to have this DNA that is going to make its way through into anything you do. I think that's what's clear from this film. The process of trying to, it's like we're trying to combine a one and a zero with this movie, because as you say, all my other films are shot in the real world at some level and are trying to have this feeling of anything could happen at any moment. And here I'm working with actors who are only saying the lines in the script and are only working with other actors generally, right? So everything is basically totally controlled, right? That's the one. And I'm trying to add a zero element to it, which is, okay, I know what's going to happen. And I know the conditions of everything that's going to happen in the frame. So, so how do I then create this feeling? I, lo I love how you said this, that, that literally anything could happen. And the way that we approached this was, what if I keep my camera department and my acting department completely separate? So the camera knows almost as little as they possibly can about where the actors are going to be, what they're going to say, what they're going to do, how they're going to move, right? And I put them on lenses that are so long. We use the same uh, lenses that National Geographic uses to film nature photography, the nature documentaries like, like Planet Earth, et cetera. So the cameras can be so, so, so far away, and they're not going to know exactly where the actors are going to move, what they're going to say. So that what we're watching, the term we kept using on set was, how can we make these scenes seem as though they're found and not placed, right? Like, right. it's not like we put it there. It's like the, the anti-Kubrickian, anti like, like we're doing the exact opposite of what Stanley Kubrick would do, where everything is perfect, perfect, perfect. Like he's building a dollhouse. We are basically trying to capture something as though we have no idea what's going to happen. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it, 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 it sometimes can create some, some true disorganization and frustration. But when it works, it's really, really fun. Because then the actors are just doing their thing. They can't even see the cameras. And uh, Jared, behind the lens, is desperately trying to figure out what's going on, which leads to some really fun stuff. Was it a shock to any of the cast at all? I mean, I, I think most of them... Yes. <laughs> yes. Right. Because I, I was going to say, I think most of them are probably okay with it because the Glenn and Jay and, you know, they they come from comedy to, to, to some extent, but what happens when you stick Michael Ironside in the middle of that framework? You, you believe it or not, Michael is such a, like a grand old duke of independent cinema that he was extremely amenable to it. Wow. Extremely so. In fact, he likened a lot of the stuff that we were doing. He would tell stories about Verhoeven shooting. He's got a great story about shooting um, Total Recall. Uh, where Verhoeven's got a special effects camera so far away he can't see it. He doesn't know that it's the scene where he gets his arms ripped off uh, in the elevator, and he doesn't know they're about to shoot it. And the whole reason, if you watch this, I'm a huge fan, I'm a huge Verhoeven fan. Um, and the whole reason that Ironside screams in the close-up right before his arms get ripped off is because 
he didn't realize they were about to shoot because the camera's so far away and Verhoeven's so far away that he didn't know they, they were rolling and he hadn't put his ear protection in yet. And so when the squibs, as he knows, are about to explode, he screams as loud as he can to close the ear canals so he doesn't deafen with the explosion of the squibs. Um, and and so right away I knew this was a kindred spirit in terms of a um, less normal um, approach to filmmaking. And Ironside is a filmmaker in his own right. He had hundreds and hundreds of suggestions on how we should stage things, where we should put the camera. But generally, the question I got the most when we'd arrive on set is where the hell are the cameras? Because they'd be so far away, you couldn't see them. And actors, as I'm sure you know, are very, very good at finding their light, finding their angle, finding their close up, right? Knowing how to play to it. And that's a real talent. And we had to kind of, sometimes we would do that. We'd be like, okay, here's where you're going to be. This is where it's like we put them in a box. But Glenn, especially, like we just let them go just go anywhere you want to go we'll find you and once you kind of got used to it it's what's so fun because then it's like you don't feel the pressure of okay now i'm in my now this is my moment and we'd only shoot you know well sometimes we do a lot of takes but never really more than like eight or nine and then we're done we don't we don't have to change it up for new coverage we just go till till uh, jared says he thinks he got it I got to go back to Michael Ironside for a second because you you telling that story right and the way you told that story, you must I mean like you say you're a massive Verhoeven fan and Michael Ironside fan and Cronenberg uh, I guess and Huge. Uh, you must have been a pig and shit with Michael Ironside. Um, let me tell you let me tell you the day he arrived all right so you know how my character is kind of such an asinine um, like almost like a. <laughs> what what a film twitter guy would have been in the 90s you know what i mean like he's just he's just he's like this is what it is and he's so into sci-fi and so into kind of yeah, in trying to figure out exactly what doug's aesthetic was it was pretty easy it was it was sort of like a heavy metal um and i'm talking about the film um heavy metal and everything adjacent style aesthetic so so like cronenberg obviously all sci-fi scott both scott's and 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 trying to figure out exactly what that poster aesthetic would be and so i was like well obviously this guy's going to be like a starship troopers fan huge and so as for as as ironside walks onto the set the first day i've got this huge starship troopers poster up because i'm thinking oh this is going to be so clever and he just kind of looks at it he didn't say a word and i was like i turned to uh um adam belanger our uh, production designer i said let's change the um Starship Cooper's poster. Uh, let's let's get that off the wall. Like it was clear that this was not <laughs> this was not a fit. You know, he, he he did not like this. You know, he didn't say a word. He didn't say a word. So yes, I was ecstatic at the idea that I could have. I'll tell you another person I wanted in the film was Ilias Cotius. Badly, badly, I wanted Ilias in the film, and uh, and it, it didn't work out. And I thought that that was also going to be so delicious to have Casey Jones in a movie with so many Ninja Turtles references. Um, but I, I imagine he also would have had a negative reaction to do that. Everything we talk about so far um, is really interesting because what you've done, well, your style of filmmaking, what you've done with this film, I think really fits actually, because this ostensibly sort of ramshackle style fits the group of this ragtag team of ramshackle guys who were- It's, it's what drew me to it. Right, yeah, because they're so obviously, they're like geniuses. They're amazingly talented and clever and pioneering, but also, they're like they have no idea. Yeah, yeah exactly. They're making shit up on the fly. And so in a way, they sort of feel like you. They sort of feel like you and your friends making these other movies, right? Is that did you click into that immediately? 
Alex, you literally have have nailed the the deep resonance of why I wanted to make this film at all. I'm reading the book, okay? And it's a piece of journalism, right? I'm reading a, a, a basically what amounts to 19 Wall Street Journal articles all stitched together about this company, Research in Motion. And I'm going, how am I going to make a movie out of this? What? I, like, I don't know anything about this. I know nothing about cellular technology. I, I'm not a technological person whatsoever. I'm not, I don't have an engineering mind. Mm -hmm. And then I read about these guys in their early 20s in this, what is ostensibly a fraternity. And I go, oh my God, this is me and my friends. They have no idea they're, they're onto something. They think what they're doing is meaningless, but to them, it's the most important thing in the world. They're willing to work all hours for no money and just for the, just for the thrill of being together. Right. And I'm like, this is my life before I'd finish the dirties. And then I make the dirties and all of a sudden my life changes. This is the first time I, I spoke with you. Um, where now all of a sudden there's this pressure on me and I'm feeling like, oh, now I have to be a serious adult. And I'm noticing other people are showing up in my life that I don't really know. A kind of Jim Balsillian influence where it's like, okay, now we actually need to grow up. And I'm feeling the culture that I, this bottom up culture that I came uh, 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 into the world with start to erode. And for me to start needing to make difficult decisions about like, okay, well, what am I doing with my life in the same way that I see Doug and Mike arguing over what the best way to proceed in this new world is. And of course, I, I did not invent the BlackBerry or anything close to it. But the analogy of it was, was close enough that I was like, I think I understand what this really does feel like. And so you, you, you nailed it dead on. That's exactly what drew me to the film. Well, I think that's, you know, even though it's a comedy and these guys, uh, you know, to some extent, laughing stocks along the way and you know you've got the story of the 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 triumph and then the tragedy of, of the blackberry it's very clear to me throughout the whole thing that you feel a deep kinship and affection to them and i think that's what really comes and i think i don't can't see how the film would work without that well it would be a parody yeah. i think the difference between between um a sincere ah, you know what i know i don't want to degrade other work here but you you can tell i when i watch something i can tell how the filmmaker feels about his subjects. Yeah. You can tell. And, and, and at this stage in my life, I am not interested in movies that look down on its, on its characters. I'm not, because why would, why are you showing me this? If you don't, if you yourself don't respect the desires and dreams of the people that you're, you're, you're trying to show me arcs of. And, and I, I said to Glenn and Jay early on, look, I promise you can't, you will not embarrass yourself because I care so deeply about what these guys are going to do and I want them all to win. Yeah. And and in my and in my opinion, even though it may sound crazy, I think they all do win in a way. They all kind of get like their stories resolve in a way that is extremely respectful to them. And it's it's also why I wasn't so worried about the response from the real Jim, the real Mike, the real Doug because of course superficially they may be put off like oh that, that didn't happen like that or I'm being put in a bad light, especially Jim, you know, who thinks like oh I'm not I'm not a jerk like that. But I think deep down, the film pays them a kind of almost mythic respect. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Jim, you just mentioned Jim is the, the character who's pay, is played by um, Glenn Howerton. And um, he is primal in this film. He's psychotic, you know. I mean, I talked, I mentioned before the fact that the, the film has a sense about it that anything can happen at any time. A lot of that is due to him. Because absolutely threat of violence about him, and you—oh my God! That you—I'm know, going to tell you that's exactly what Glenn and I talked about early days. That 
for the first time in these guys' lives, him in the room means that there is a threat of violence. That was a key phrase to us. Even though there's no violence in the movie, the idea that at any moment this guy could physically hurt somebody. But he is. Yeah. yeah. He's violent. I mean, he'd like, yeah, I don't think he punches anyone. I think he punches some things, maybe. But he, he breaks phones. He breaks phones. <laughs> he does break phones. But you do get the sense that he could go like Patrick Bateman on anyone at any point. Um, how much of that was in the intrinsic madness of Glenn Houghton and how much of that was you pushing him to go to those places? The first conversation we had was, hey, how about we make this our strategy? You, can, you will be the funniest person in this movie and, and all you need to do is literally never ever try to be funny. Right. And, and he went, okay, I got this. And, and so we approached it that way. And the second rule that we had is let's try to get as put you in a position where you have everything on the line and you are so like at any moment you you know you're going to lose everything and so that gives you permission to get as angry and and bellicose as you want but you'll never be sadistic you'll never take joy in the fact that you're screaming at and humiliating and smashing things it will always cause you pain and that was the second rule that we had and so with those two guiding principles he went as far as he could right because he knew he was bound in by those two rules and that i think helped him to go completely nuts yeah. but but it was but it wasn't I, i'll tell you that's not every take right like glenn glenn did a lot of softer stuff too like he's an artist he, he went he went to juilliard like his 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 dream was to be a dramatic actor and so he came with all the tools what an amazing film it's absolutely unique uh and it's a lot of fun. And without meaning to put any people off, I think it's quite sad as well. Yeah, I agree. It's it's the kind of um, bittersweetness that uh, that you get when you get all when all your dreams come true and you realize you didn't actually want that. Yeah. <laughs> well, on, on that bombshell. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, I can't wait to see what the hell you do next. Um, uh, I'm excited. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Alex. Anytime. I'm, I love talking to you. Okay, that was Matt Johnson. Blackberry is in cinemas right now and will be out to buy and rent digitally very, very soon. Consult your Blackberry for more information. Clickety-click. But let's talk about the films that are out this week in the multiplex and on your sofaplex. There's only one place to start. It's a film that is in the cinemas this week and will be on Netflix in a couple of weeks' time. It is the new film from David Fincher, which is always cause for jubilation and excitement. It is called The Killer, but Helen, it is not a remake of the John Woo classic. No, it is not. It is an adaptation, in fact, of a French comic, or bon dessinée if you're local, yeah, <laughs> uh, by Matt and uh, Luc Jacquemot. And it is... Jacquemot? Jacquemot. Oh, okay. M-O-N. It's, it's, I thought it was freaking fantastic. So it is um, essentially an account of life as a hitman, uh, Michael Fassbender plays this unnamed killer who we meet staking out uh, a, basically a Parisian apartment where his subject his subject is going to be, and he's been basically waiting for weeks, setting himself up, ready to kill at the perfect moment. Um, so you see the kind of the level of detail, preparation, um, you know, obsession really that goes into this job, the the level of care and attention to detail that he has to take. And and you're kind of uh, in his head. You're in his internal monologue and literal monologue, um, narrating the film, and uh, and basically things go a bit wrong, and uh, he has to you know 
get himself out of a bit of trouble, but goes about it with the same very methodical, very step-by-step approach. And it's kind of more fascinating, I thought, than the usual sort of, you know, sweaty on the run, got to react immediately, ah, kind of craziness. This is a very, very calm person. He literally, you know, takes his heart rate and makes sure his heart rate is as low as possible when he's about to shoot mm. and things like that. This is a very calm person going through one step after another after another. Even when he is panicked, even when things have gone very badly wrong and he has to rush, he's doing so in a methodical manner. And I just find that really kind of strangely compelling and strangely uh, fascinating because it's just not something we always see. It's, It's always people kind of scrambling to act. It's always, you know, the everyman who doesn't know what he's doing and is thrust into this situation. And this is a guy who knows exactly what he's doing and has chosen this situation and is just responding with a very carefully laid out set of plans. And it's kind of amazing, I thought, for that. I mean, John, you were at the review, right? So Yeah, I thought it was uh, like utterly riveting. Mm. I mean, first of all, it's like it's interesting to watch this film compared to David Finch's last film, which was, of course, Mank, which felt yeah. like a very different kind of film for him. I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Mank. Yeah, no, yeah. I understood. Um, but man for it. This is this feels like sort of classic Fincher, if you like. This is Fincher in seven mode, in zodiac mode, mm. in fight club mode. It's him doing this sort of very stylish, very gripping, very riveting sort of thriller territory. And he's so, so good at it. And I mean, just the the the, the level of filmmaking craft on show here is just astonishingly good there really isn't many filmmakers uh, like as good as him at that um and also michael fassbender is fantastic i mean this is his first role in what four years Four years, yeah um and he you forget how like he's one of those few actors who can really hold the screen i mean he's on in pretty much every shot for the entire film mm. um and he's so sort of chilling and cold and kind of sociopathic but also there are little chinks in his armor, you know. You see little little flashes of Moments humanity, of humanity, yeah, and and little bits of of humor and little bits of mercy is too strong a word, but there is a kind of mercy at, at a couple of points. Mm. Um, and and it's just a really interesting approach. Like this character is not a normal guy; he's a very weird person. Um, but as you say, I mean, there's issues of of masculinity. There's questions about capitalism. There's a lot of questions about capitalism and and exploitation and um, the fact that we're all cogs in the machine, no matter how deadly and how powerful you may seem to others. So it's it's a really it's a really layered and interesting film. I'm really looking forward to seeing it again and kind mm. of just like lingering with it a bit more and taking it in. But um, it's but also, yeah, also globe trotting, by the way. We should say, yeah, but beautifully. You know, from Paris onwards, he goes on a journey, literally and metaphorically. It's also just really funny in places, mm. like surprisingly funny. I mean, the the the, the hitman, the killer, he, he he's never named, he uh, um, he listens to the Smiths. It's, I was going to say this, there's a lot of fucking Morrissey in this film. The, in many ways, too much Morrissey uh, for. I found that quite funny. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> he, he listens to the Smiths to relax. Oh boy. To calm his nerves. But um, he listens to the Smiths exclusively. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Smiths is basically the only thing on the soundtrack. 100%. Yeah. yeah. And I, th- that's a bit much. But look, so this is a really fastidious film, and he's a very fastidious character. And he's the, a fast character. Indeed, that too. And he's he's. 
It's extremely well put together and the craft is absolutely flawless. I think my only issue with this, I think the first 45 minutes of this is fucking unbelievable. Just absolutely, you like the, the, the scenario, the setup is incredibly familiar to us. We know exactly what it is, but it's treated in a completely unconventional way. It feels very granular. It feels incredibly detailed. I really loved that. And then I felt that very unconventional format became much more conventional as the film went along and it's split into kind of various chapters and it almost feels like it laps into almost like a video game format as you get further on and don't get me wrong I don't want to kind of you know belittle what Finch has done here like it's extraordinarily good there is a a fight sequence in an apartment which is meticulously choreographed and absolutely stunning but I feel that the film peaks in that first 45 minutes and I feel everything down there it's a gentle slope but it is downhill from there. And I found the ending quite anti- anticlimactic. So I think that's deliberate very yeah, much. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think it was definitely a stylistic choice. But, I, you know, so I think I maybe came out of it thinking, I thought this film would be absolutely mind-blowing. And as it happens, it's just very good. But even that is a good thing, right? Like, yeah. it's, still, it's mm. just, it's not Fincher it is very, very best, but it's Fincher it is very, very good. <laughs> but even you know even Fincher at his very very good is it's pretty damn good better than most yeah like he's he is genuinely one of our best mm. um, all I'm just saying some Taylor Swift on the soundtrack would have killed you oh god wow <laughs> <sighs> what did we give this one four, four stars. stars four stars which is a recommendation very it much. is it's very a, much so it's a super recommendation uh, but not a super duper recommendation which, which is what five stars uh, is I haven't seen this yet uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Uh, I haven't also seen the film that is, I think, destined to be the biggest movie of the weekend, which is Five Nights at Freddy's, which is tracking for a $50 million opening weekend, apparently, wow. in the States, okay. because it is a phenomenon that I have to say uh, has, like Taylor Swift, passed me by completely. Mm. Uh, but Hell's Bells, I know you're a big fan of the video games. <laughs> huge, huge fan of of the games, which I play regularly on regularly. my on my. So naturally, NES? you have no, you is have. That, is that what people use now? <laughs> yeah. My Commodore sixty four. Yes, now? yeah, yes, your Commodore sixty four. <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, uh, so you went and saw you went and saw this. And, I did. Yes. And this is one of the many, many wonderful horror films being released this weekend. Or is it actually wonderful? It's it's a weird one. I was really I was really torn on what to give this. Um, it wasn't at all what I was expecting. So uh, this is obviously based on the on the video game Five Nights at Freddy's, where you are a security guard in a sort of abandoned theme restaurant, and you are essentially under attack from these animatronic creatures who come to life each night and go around murdering people. Right, but but the game is almost more puzzle solving than than sort of carnage. It's not ne- it's not Doom. Right, so I have such such up to the minute game references. <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not FIFA ninety three, Chris. <laughs> so um, so yeah, so it's it's an it's a uh, that's the game, and this is an interesting way to adapt it because if you actually look at the the sort of history of the the making of this film, at various points, people like Gil Kennan was attached, Chris Columbus was attached, so they were clearly going for a sort of more. I think gentle, family-friendly, maybe end of horror. Not to say that there there isn't a bit of gore in this. This is a fifteen in the UK. I think it's a PG thirteen in the states. Did you hear what they want to do in Northern Ireland? What's that? They want to introduce the fifteen A. Oh, that's interesting. So you could bring kids to go and see it as well. Huh. Well, anyway, I don't think you should bring kids to this just because I think they might be terrified of the animatronic. 
animals, which are quite upsetting. So there is a bit of, I don't want to say that there isn't any murder. There is murder. Murder, murder, murder. Murder, 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 murder by these animatronic creatures who look like bunnies and teddy bears and all the rest. But it's not really the focus of the film because our hero, Mike, who is played by Josh Hutcherson, yes. um, is is absolutely not really interested in that. He is obsessed with trying to lucid dream his way into finding clues to the long ago abduction of his baby brother, right? So his baby brother was abducted in front of him. The, the guy drove away as he stood there, unable to do anything about it. And he's trying to basically remember some clue, something that will will reveal who this guy was, where he went, what happened in this you know traumatic moment of Mike's life. He also, by the way, has a little sister who he has been left looking after after his mother died and his father left. So he's he's got a difficult life. He's got a difficult time and he has lost a bunch of jobs. So he takes this job as a night, night watchman at Freddy's. But what's weird to me about this film is he more or less ignores the animatronic beasties for most of the film. He doesn't care. He is busy trying to go to sleep to lucid dream his way into clues about his brother. He... He doesn't notice when a bunch of people are killed. Uh, he he isn't aware that there is a particular danger there. I mean, he doesn't particularly love the place, but he's not really into it. And maybe that's baked into the title because you have to have him go back for five nights. Yes. And if it went full Halloween the first night, maybe you don't return, you no. know? But, um, but it does create this weird disconnect between your hero of your movie and your quote-unquote bad guys, your, your, your robots, whatever. Mm. So I, I find that quite odd, and I find the tone quite odd. It's directed by Emma T- Tammy, who has done a couple of smaller horror films, and I think it's a big sort of step up. And she directs it perfectly well, but it's just this weird... Is it scary? It's cut to the I chase. I mean, I is am a wimp. You know I'm a wimp. Yeah. So there were, of course, moments that scared me. There's a couple of jump scares, things like that. But overall, I would say no, and I don't think it's aiming to be that scary, actually. I think it's That's aiming a bold to strategy, do something. Cotton, that, it's, it it's actually, off. it is actually more of a ghost story than it is a sort of a monster movie. So if you want the slash and grab kind of animatronic animals, you're going to have to go and watch Willy's Wonderland that came up oh, a couple of years ago and kind of ripped film. off this video game. But but this is not going for the horror, the gore, the killer robot really angle as nearly as much as you think it's going to. And and that's fine. I'm not dinging it for not being what I expected it to be. I'm dinging it because. I didn't feel like the two halves naturally fit very well together. And it's obviously, I mean, the, the creator of the game is involved in this. I think he, he co-wrote the story and the script and he was he's a producer. So it, this is obviously what they want to do. It's not like someone has taken the game away and done something wildly different with it. But it does feel, um, it does feel really odd as an approach to a horror game like this, you know? So, uh, but it does it does come from the canon. If people know the games, they'll know the canon a little bit, especially the, the sequel games. Some of this is there. It's not coming out of nowhere. But it's um, it's just an odd film. Uh, three stars then for Five Nights at Freddy's. Just talking about Freddy's made me think about Freddy Krueger and then maybe think more about the mashup question from earlier on and maybe think about another answer. I'm just going to throw it in real quick. Do you remember when Doctor Who used to do episodes like The Five Doctors and they would get, mm. the, you know, some of the, the doctors together like Pertwee and, and Baker and Trout and people like that. Maybe to get them all together. I want to get like the five Dracleers. Only five? Well, because you know, Christopher Lee is no longer with us, sadly. Okay. Bella Lugosi is no longer with us. But I want to get at least five people who have famously played Draculaire So Luke Evans, together. Jared Luke Butler. Evans, Jerry Butler. We, we're, we're Gary wow, Oldman. Already, we're cooking with guys. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Dominic Purcell from Blade Trinity. I think we, we were all had that name on our lips, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it rises to the top immediately. <laughs> and Adam Sandler. And uh, Well, 
oh, Hotel course, yes. Transylvania, which I saw baby. for the first time the other day. I took a little drinking game there and uh, to see it. It was on look at picture. You took house. her to Hotel Transylvania. I did. Yeah, wow. it was bad parenting. Mm. Bad parenting. Um, fun film. Yeah, fun yeah. film. Yeah. yeah. So I want to see them all together. The five drag leaders. Okay, that would okay. be nice. Uh, anyway, three stars then for Five Nights at Freddy's. Uh, Jimbo. Retribution. Will be Swift. <laughs> Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift, yes, indeed. Uh, there is a 2011 film called Unknown, starring Liam Neeson. There is a 2015 film called El Desconocido. Yes. Which means The, the unknown. unknown. Yes, some more. This is a remake of The Unknown, but it's not called Unknown because Liam Neeson has already made Unknown. Is that clear? But Liam Neeson's character in Unknown would have forgotten that. That's true. Because he had amnesia. He did. Anyway, this is the latest Jerry Action film from Liam Neeson, and it is kind of a cross between... Well, imagine if Speed was a bit shit. It's kind of that. <laughs> or Speed 2, in other words. Like Speed 2, <laughs> but, kind of, but without a boat. Uh, kind of crossed with... Tom Hardy's lock. So essentially, uh, Liam Neeson, who is a terrible father and also a banker, a massive banker, and uh, he takes his two kids to school only to discover that there's a bomb in the car. And if he doesn't do exactly what the scary voice on the phone says, the bomb will explode and kill them all. He can go at whatever speed he likes, though, so that's handy. So he spends most of this film literally on the phone to someone who's across between Dennis Hopper and Jigsaw, speaking through a kind of voice-distorting thing, telling him all the things he must do in order to not get blown up uh, and maybe kind of possibly incriminating himself in the process. It's short, which is good. It's only 90 minutes long. Ooh. It's not terrible, to be fair. It's just, it kind of, it just feels quite unnecessary. And the dialogue is not great. And some of the delivery is a bit embarrassing. The two kids are not fabulous either. And obviously he shares most of his screen time with them. Um, there is a kind of twist-ish that you will see coming within about two minutes. Um, it doesn't really go anywhere particularly interesting. Liam is great. He's always great. He's he's fun to watch. He does this stuff in his sleep. He may well have been asleep for much of this film. Um, it's Nimrod Antal directing it, oh, who did Predators. Predators. I am reviewing this. I have yet to write my review, but it will be getting, I think, a two-star rating. Is it better than Unknown? I mean, it's much of a muchness. This, this honestly, Retribution, it's, I love this, Liam Neeson's films over the last decade or so, they're all called things like Retribution, Unknown, Taken. It's just like, fucking pick a word. He loses interest of two words on the title, <laughs> title page. Oh, fuck it, two words, fuck that. But he's great, love Big Liam. How does it? I, I know, but how does it derive drama from Liam Neeson? I mean, drives because he's literally in a car going around. Derive drama. How does it derive drama <laughs> from him being in a car? Uh, so it's in Germany. I should say that it's set in Germany. Uh, but he yeah, he drives from place to place, trying not to blow up. <laughs> that's that's broadly speaking. So the guy on the phone will call him up and say, "Right, take a left here." Take, like, like, right. like a really shitty Google Maps. Is this uh, like Satan now? This is yeah, like the thing I paid like, years ago. At the roundabout, take the third exit yeah. or explode. Yeah. At the roundabout, yeah. At the next at left, the, light, the next left, turn left. Yes, it's a, it's a little bit like that. And then it's like, go to the bank, do this. No, go here. Ah, this person's blowing up. So I should point out, other cars do blow up, just not the one that Liam is in. For the... <laughs> seem to have left a lot of important Spoiler. information out yeah. of the. Review. Well, it's kind of it's it's kind of tangential to the main story. Okay. The main story is he drives around and tries not to explode. All right, excellent stuff. Which is good advice when you're driving. So. Eh? Stars for Retribution. James is going to figure that out after this uh, podcast has been recorded. John, cat person. Are you a cat person? Uh, I'm more of a dog person. Uh, so am I. Why? Cats yeah. can fuck off. I know I know. cats might be listening to this and might be offended, but uh, quite frankly, you know, just fucking piss off. Quite right. There you go. Take that, cats. I love cats. 
but I love dogs more. But Cat Person is a film. Uh, yes, Cat Person uh, is an adaptation of a New Yorker short story. It was a good short story. Um, which is an unusual thing to adapt. But yeah, the short story, if you... Uh, a lot of people might have read it. It came out in 2017. Um, Went really viral. Yeah. Huge viral hit. Mm. Really, um, actually great reads. Like mm. really, really like uh, worth a read. It's still online if um, you want to. It sort of spoke to the sort of millennial uh, dating experience, I suppose, um, about this young girl who goes on a date, a couple of dates maybe with this older man and it sort of ends a bit uncomfortably and there's a sort of you know it's it's it unclear what the dynamics are um and then yes this has been turned into a feature length story with uh, Emilia Jones in the lead role and Nicholas Braun uh, as the the man that he date that she dates uh, Nicholas Braun of course cousin Greg mm-hmm. from yeah. Succession Emilia Jones who was fantastic in Coda this is her first film since then um, and it, you know, it is a fairly faithful adaptation of the short story. The short story pretty much takes up most of the first and second acts of the film and, you know, follows it pretty much beat by beat. And then it decides to add an extra act, I guess, because oh. the short story is not a feature length story. Yeah. The uh, the filmmakers, uh, this was directed by Susanna Fogel, who did uh, The Spy Who Dumped Me. They add this third act, which, oh boy, it really goes off the rails. It, um, it, it, just, it just feels like it's from a completely different film entirely. Does it's, she get a dog? She does not get a dog, no. I mean, the cat person refers to, uh, he, he, Nicholas Braun's character yeah. calls himself a cat person. Yeah. Um, uh, there are no cats or dogs in the film, but yeah, man, the the third act of this film is is one of the worst examples of jumping the shark I've seen in a or long, a cat, long time. Jumping the cat, yeah. yeah, it's just coughs up a hairball. Pretty dreadful. <laughs> it, it is just like there are some sort of storytelling choices that you just think, what are you thinking? Like, why would you think this is good? I, I mean, it's it's a sort of fascinating failure, I suppose, mm. in a way. It's just like it really, yeah, it it really is bizarrely bad. Um, and I don't know, I don't know what they were trying to say about you know gender dynamics and relationship dynamics, but it just doesn't work. Um, it's a shame. So yeah, it kind of there are some good bits in the first couple of acts. There's some interesting like observations on relationships and stuff but that last act just drags everything down with it and yeah it can't be recommended ouch John two stars for cat person it cannot be recommended a little bit harsh thankfully a film that can be recommended is Greta Gerwig's Barbie hey everybody it's Chris here just jumping in real quick uh, at home to bring you an extra special Empire Podcast treat And it's not scary at all, although it does involve a doll coming to life. So your mileage may vary on that. Uh, Greta Gerwig's delightful, hilarious, touching, wonderfully odd Barbie is the biggest film of the year so far, although I suspect it will remain so when all's done and dusted. And after its incredible theatrical run and $1.4 billion earned... When it seemingly inspired the whole world to don pink and sing the Ken song, it has finally been released on home video, DVD, Blu-ray, or pink ray, surely, lols. 
4K the works and we were absolutely delighted and honoured when during her recent visit to London for the London Film Festival Greta Gerwig agreed to talk to us about the film and its incredible success for both an upcoming issue of the magazine and this very podcast. So what you're going to hear now is around 15, 20 minutes or so of Ben Travis sitting down in a London hotel room with the director du jour, the incredible Greta Gerwig, and it is an absolute delight. Hi, Barbie. Enjoy. So a huge welcome to the Empire podcast. Thank you. The director and writer of Barbie, Greta Gerwig. How are you doing? Uh, well, I'm, I'm very well. I'm very pleased to be back in London. I love it here. Um, it's just been, uh, you know, such an extraordinary ride with this movie. And, I, you know, it's, it's wonderful to talk about it, to keep talking about it because it's, I love it. And I'm, I'm glad that people have gone to see it. Yeah. And you're back in town because it's the London Film Festival. You had your, yes. your talk for the LFF last I did. night. I did. Um, yeah. What is it like for you to, yeah, still be these months later talking about the, this film in the world of this film? What does that mean to you? Uh, well, it's, it's truly, you know, wonderful that it resonated the way it did and that people went and, you know, saw it in the movie theaters and, that it was, you know, packed cinemas. It's just, it's the thing I wanted most of all, because when Noah Baumbach and I were writing it, it was in the middle of um, you know, lockdown in the summer of 2020, and there was no movies, and there was no communal experience of being in a movie theater together in the dark and laughing and, you know, feeling joy and maybe crying together. So it was something that I wanted so badly. And I think in some ways we built this film and thought, well, first of all, we thought nobody would ever let us make it. But we thought, <laughs> well, if they do, it was almost like building our own portal to the future when people were together. Like there was, there was something about it. It was almost like trying to, using the movie to conjure togetherness yeah. Um, in a movie theater. So so I'm um, being able to now talk about it from the perspective of that that experience having happened and still happening is just, um, it just was wonderful. I want to touch on something you said there. I adore this film. It's such a blast. And watching it for the very first time was a real situation of, I cannot believe the things that you're <laughs> getting away with in this movie that you've managed to get into this big summer comedy blockbuster Barbie movie. And I imagine there must have been a feeling for you while you were making it of, am I getting away with this? Can I get away with this? The answer from the world is not just that you got away with it, <laughs> is that this has been absolutely embraced for all of the things that might have made you go, is this the right thing to do? How does it feel standing here now with the incredible success of this film on so many levels that those decisions, those choices clearly have resonated with with people on such a huge level? Yeah, I, no, I mean, um, I share your disbelief that this ever come back. I'm I I think it, you know the script we wrote was um outlandish and and bananas and just really you know kind of unlike anything else. So I think the fact that they signed on to the script even initially was sort of incredible. And then 
even getting to make it, what the script was, felt sort of amazing. And then um, once we were making it, it was totally like bold and outrageous, even in the execution. It, it, even I remember when we were first starting to talk to um, department heads and how we were going to do it and line producers and putting it together. And they said, oh, well, sur surely you want, we'll need to shoot in Australia or in California so we can get the beaches. And I was, I said, oh no, everything's interior. We're going to shoot this all inside. They're all going to be builds. And they said, what? And I was like, oh yeah, no, it's, it, we're going to have painted skies and fake oceans. And I, I, in that moment, I, you know, no one knows what's in your head. Nobody knows that that's what you want to do. And so that also is just such a strange constructed thing that was such a bold choice. And then, you know, there were just many moments throughout the making of it that I thought, I just need to keep going. I got, I've already committed to so much strangeness on the screen. I think there's no walking it back now. I just got to keep going. Um, and I just kept going to, well, does it delight me? Does it delight my collaborators? Is everyone enjoying it? And I thought, well, if it's true for the people in this room, some of whom are great artists, great, my Rodrigo Prieto, my cinematographer, Sarah Greenwood, production designer, Jacqueline Duran, costume designer, all of these fabulous actors. I thought, well, if they're enjoying it, Maybe other people. Well, maybe maybe this maybe this is enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is such a bold film in so many ways, and I can't wait to get into some of those real elements of boldness. For you, what is the creative decision that you kind of had to fight for the hardest that paid off to the highest degree? <sighs> Gosh, um, I don't know if it's one decision. I think. Um, In a way, you know, every part of the movie was um, was something I had to really go to bat for, but also um, because none of it is, I mean, uh, none of it's obvious and none of it would you say, oh, this is a wonderful decision. Why don't you have them ride imaginary horses? Um, <laughs> like, it, like, they were all kind of outrageous decisions, but I think... I could just see it so clearly in my mind that 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 makes it very easy to fight for what you love. And it doesn't feel like a fight. You're just telling people exactly how it has to be. And that's actually my experience of it. It, it rarely feels, even when there is a kind of push and pull with a, with a studio or, um, you know, with Mattel about, uh, well, what is this? How is it going to work? I think when you see it clearly... It's less like, here's my position, there's their position, and more you just saying, I've seen the future. You're in it, <laughs> and it looks like this. Um, so, so it was sort of everything. Um, I mean, the thing I'm – I mean, things like, like the Ken Dream Ballet, that was just – there was definitely a moment where people didn't really know – what it was or why it needed to be there. Right. And I was just pretty certain about it. And then <laughs> it was just so marvelous when we shot it and it just became so clear so quickly. Like, this is right. This is the right way to do this. I think from an audience perspective, it feels that way too. Every element of the film, you're following it wherever it's going to lead you and you have a, maybe a split second of like, we're going here and then very instantly going, 
this feels like the play, the only place that this could have gone. It's this miraculous kind of journey. And uh, I'd love to talk to you about those performances. You, you feel everything those characters are going through whilst they're also constructions of people's with their evolving relationship to humanity and being dolls. And uh, that is a fascinating line I can imagine to to tread as a director of yes. like, how human are you at this point? How dull are you at this point? Yes, it was. And it was also, um, you know, I, I remember that one thing Margot and I talked about really early, which was she said, you know, to play a doll that has no desires at the beginning is extremely hard to activate because, I mean, the whole, you're always supposed to, as an actor, what do you want? Like, what's, what's your, what are you, as a character, and you're tracing these things. And I was like, well, she doesn't want anything because she's totally continuous with her environment and her, she, she has no inner life. There's nothing. If you looked inside, it would look exactly what was going on outside until there's a break. And then suddenly she has an inner life and she doesn't want it <laughs> because that's, a, that's painful to be discontinuous from your environment. And so Margot and I, it was really nailing that down and finding the way to do it that was, she's smart, she's thoughtful, she's not ditzy, but she is not a person yet. And that's a strange task. So, I, I mean, in a way, it, it seems she's so effortless in how she does it, but that's not clear how to perform that. So um, it had to be worked out by her, and she did it obviously brilliantly. But it was, um, it's almost like I realized this, the weirdness of what I was asking her to do when, I don't know, about three weeks before we started shooting, she was like, can I come over and we'd talk about this? And she was like, how do you want me to play this? <laughs> I was like, oh, Oh yeah, why would you know how to play this? No one knows how to play yeah. this. Because I thought, oh surely you'll just you'll do it perfect. Um at the same time you have this other really brave decision in the film which is the America Ferrera monologue which is such an incredible sequence. When you were writing that scene, when you were shooting that scene, did you know that it was going to hit in the way that it did and how did it feel that a big part of the heart of your movie actually isn't with Barbie. Yeah. Well, that part of it, I, when we were writing it, that just became, you know, this, this, this heart, this, this one, one half of the beating heart of Barbie is this, this character of Gloria and her, as we call, came to call it, the Gloria Aria. Um, which is, I, it is like an aria. She does it so beautifully. Um, that felt instantly right. Uh, she is the person. She is the human being who has been living. And so she has a lifetime to be able to speak about what, what it means. Um, but so when we were writing it, that, that felt correct. And then when... America accepted the role and she was the person I wanted to be to play the part. Um when she accepted the role and then she had such a strong reaction to it and then she started bringing her own experience into it and embroidering it with things that were specific to her that felt like it, it was like widening the circle a little and then and then it felt like 
it wasn't a piece of writing that I had done and given into her. Then it became something that we both owned. And then, um, and then when she performed it, you know, everyone on the set became extremely emotional. And the thing I noticed was that it was men and women. It was not just women. And I thought, I thought to myself, men also have a set of impossible standards and they see ours and they have their own. And America doing this speech was almost like this invitation to collectively let ourselves off this insane tightrope that we're all on. And I think that was something where once it, once it was touching people in that way on set, I just thought, maybe this will be something that many people see themselves in. And, um, yeah, it, but it was, yeah, it was when I looked around and I was like, okay, I, I'm crying. Then I was like, the women are crying. And I was like, oh, the men are crying. <laughs> or they're kind of wiping yeah. away tears. And that actually happened a couple of times. That's also happened with um, Margot's conversation with Ruth. Right. I, I watched um, the focus puller. Just all of a sudden there's just tears streaming down his yeah. face. And he was like, Cry, you know, I, you know, he was thinking about his mother, his grandmother, or whatever that relationship is. And I, I think, um, even though obviously it's a movie Barbie, which is, you know, I think many girls have I have lit, grown up with, and maybe it's seen as a more um, girl centric thing. It's a human thing. Yeah, and I think that's those. That's what I realized watch, watching the making of it, and then now watching the audience receive it that way. What's been your favorite reaction to seeing I'm Just Ken make its way into the world? I have to say, I was at karaoke a couple of weeks ago <gasps> with a couple of other Kens. They had it on the system. No. All three of us did it together. It has the whole thing, including like the dance breakdowns. It's Stop. got like instrumental oh moments. Oh my God. You had to be there. It was glorious. Incredible. Uh, what's been your favorite reaction to seeing that song That's... make its way into the world? Honestly, maybe that. <laughs> I mean, to karaoke. Yeah. I mean, I think... Um... I mean, it's like I but it's like I have nephews in Sacramento, and one is one is thirteen, one is sixteen, and you know, I'm Auntie Greta, and I make these movies, but like you know, they know I'm making Barbie. They're 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 both love. They're like both love. They could tell you everything about cars. You know, they 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 like stuff right. like that, and and um is like them loving it and sort of, you know, writing. Auntie Greta, could we get I Am Knuff shirts? Like that kind of, <laughs> <laughs> that, that sort of like, I that, that kind of like um, identification, sort of they didn't necessarily know how much that would be uh, fun for them. So that sort of thing is really wonderful. But it's been very gratifying because, you know, Mark Ronson and Andrew Wyatt, who wrote the song, and um, me and Noah and them and Ryan are all on a, group chat together and just them texting you know you're you're on the pop charts like that, that, that's like the coolest thing ever that's just like that feels surreal yeah yeah what, what about for you just to wrap up where do you go from here we we've heard bits of reports of, of narnia and leaning <laughs> yeah. towards studio movies obviously you come yeah. from a, an indie yeah. background i'm yeah. still waiting for somebody doing their greta gerwig retrospectives to do a double bill screening of baghead and house of the devil oh i will God, be there yeah. i will be front row for that um oh. do you where do you see yourself moving 
out of Barbie. Um, um, well, thank you. I also, I love Baghead and I also love House of the Devil. And I have to say, um, I always have a slightly mixed thing when people are like, my favorite film of yours was House of the Devil. And I say, I agree. It's wonderful. Also, my head is blown off in that movie so i don't know what it says quite that, that but i but i'm gonna go with it i'm yeah. gonna i'm gonna go with it tom noonan is fabulous like the whole thing is it really does feel like it's a movie from the 80s it was just discovered um uh yeah i mean my goal has always been i mean i you know i hope i'm making movies for the next 40 plus years but definitely 40 years and it's not like I I just I just want to work in something big or just something small. It's more that I just want that flexibility. I think that's the thing I'm most um when I look at careers and 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 people who I admire and how they they've been able to really just have that freedom of expression. So that's what I've always been interested in doing. I mean, I think um the next I'm 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 very tired. <laughs> I also have an eight month old, so um I'm I'm tired. Um I'm I'm writing uh and I'm sort of starting to dream and think about um what I'm approaching, but definitely um yeah, I would say the land of um the land of Narnia is equal equally exciting and terrifying <laughs> but um but yeah I, I don't i can't have no, i have nothing really to report on it other than um it's something i actually was talking about um before i made barbie so that that's been that's been sort of in my unconscious working its way through but that's that's been a pattern for me i actually i wrote a draft of little women before i made ladybird and then i made right. ladybird then i went back to little women so i kind of I kind of have this, um, at least right now, this cadence of almost like leapfrogging things. Right. So I feel like I'm always um, going into my past and going to the future at the same time. <laughs> well, whatever does come next, I cannot wait to see it. And thank hugest you. congratulations on Barbie and on thank the year you. you've had. Thank you so much for your time, Greta Gooey. And thank you for the karaoke shout out. That's really beautiful. I hope it's somewhere on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky voice in Soho. It's like 10 minutes down the road. They have it on the list. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. Oh, that's fab. Oh, that was fabulous. That was absolutely fabulous. That was Ben Travis talking to Greta Gerwig about Barbie, which is available now on DVD, Blu-ray, 4K, UHD, digital, the whole shebang, quite frankly, and as well worth a revisit. Uh, we will also be doing, I think, a Barbie listener's question spoiler special uh, over the next few weeks. So if you have any questions for us, slide into my DMs about that. And listen, before you all rush to book a slot at Lucky Voice so you can sing I'm Just Ken, Let's take you back to the recording of the podcast yesterday because we have to wrap this thing up. And here's the outro. We did it. So listen, you might as well listen to it. Here it is. Enjoy. But on that note, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. There's a bunch of interesting films out next week. So we will be joined by Kitty Green, director of The Royal Hotel and Emma Seligman, director of Bottoms, which is finally getting a UK release after being out in the States for a couple of months or so. Still no sign of the uh, last voyage of Demeter, but maybe one day, maybe in time for Halloween. I, really I don't know. That. I know. Fucking hurry on. Stupid, stupid so another shit. another for your collection. Another Dracula. Yeah, indeed. 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 Also, a uh, very, very, very quick plug for our live show, Two Weeks to Go, 
and November 9th in Leeds. Tickets are selling well, but we're not entirely sold out yet, I believe. So go to store.leedstrinity.ac.uk to buy tickets just £10. It'll be one hell of a show. Anyway, until we meet again, until then, until that auspicious occasion, it is time to say goodbye to my three colleagues of such lethal cunning, two of whom are going to very exciting film-related events right now. John's off to see Thelma Schoonmaker. I'm off to see Thelma Schoonmaker and then I'm going to see I Know Where I'm Going. The oh, classic great. Alan Pressburger. Here we go. Yes. Very exciting. Yeah. Hell's Bells, where are you off to? I am going to see Bottoms. Oh. Very exciting. Oh. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm doing the, the same but only because I didn't have a screening this evening. Okay, well, it is goodbye from Helen who's off to see some Bottoms. Toodaloo. John who's off to see an absolute legend. Goodbye. And James, who doesn't know where he's going, I'm but hopes a legendary bottom. <laughs> that, that bottoms are involved, indeed. Uh, and it's goodbye for me. I'm off to Northern Ireland to spend some time in the countryside at my sister's. But I'm not, repeat not, going to fuck a cow. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.